it would appear that the entity wants us alive. Why? So we can fight? And fight and keep coming back for more like some bloody coliseum? What's next? The roar of crowds? Bridge to all decks. Brace yourself for an exciting and supersized episode of Enterprise Incidents with Scott and Steve. I'm Scott Mance. And I'm Steve Morris. And Scott, I'm feeling strangely angry and violent and ready to have a lot of conflict with you right now. Well, just make sure you don't have that conflict while brandishing a sword, Steve Morris, because we are doing our deep dive on one of my all-time favorite episodes of Star Trek. That is Day of the Dove. I have always loved this episode, and I'm very excited to announce that after our deep dive conversation, where we are joined by another guest, we are going to have an exclusive interview with the very first woman ever to play a Klingon on Star Trek. That's right. Susan Howard, who plays Mara, Kang's wife, and his science officer in Day of the Dove is going to join us after our deep dive analysis of Day of the Dove for a very special interview, and you are going to love it. I just can't wait for all of you to hear it. This interview with Susan Howard is absolutely incredible. Steve, I remember when we first started doing Enterprise Incidents a year and a half ago, and we were we were talking like about episodes that we couldn't wait to do, and I specifically brought this episode up, and it just felt like so far away because it was like, the middle of the third season, and we hadn't even like dived into the cage yet. So, but what's amazing is how fast time goes, especially when you're having fun. And fun is exactly what we have had all this time on Enterprise Incidents. And now we are finally here with our deep dive of Day of the Dove. And we are joined by a very, very, very special guest, someone who I've been reading for many, many years, someone who I have seen at Star Trek conventions for, yes, many, many years. And she has been writing about pop culture and parenting and a whole lot of other topics for print, digital, and TV. More importantly, and this is where my heart really goes out to her, she survived her very confusing adolescence by being the lone female Star Trek fan in middle school. Now, I was the only male Star Trek fan in middle school because (laughs) all my friends were Star Wars fans, so I completely relate. But more importantly, she is a contributing writer for the official StarTrek.com website. She is a senior editor for TrekMovie.com, a website that I refresh like four or five times a day. And she is the co-host of the all-access Star Trek podcast at TrekMovie.com. New episodes dropping every Friday morning. And if you love Star Trek, and of course, obviously you do because you're listening to us here on Enterprise Incidents, then you must be listening this this. All Access Star Trek podcast has to be your destination every Friday morning because you will get the latest and greatest breaking news on all things Trek across all the platforms, TV, film, books, whatever, merchandise, you name it. Welcome to Enterprise Incidents. Welcome aboard, Laurie Ulster. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much. I'm very, very excited to talk about this episode. And I really enjoy listening to you guys go through all the episodes here. I like the, the take that you have, the way that you view the series is a lot of fun. 
Well, thank you so much. And we, we, we appreciate that. You know, we really have been looking at Star Trek as a serialized show, at least the original series. And Laurie, as you know, it is an, it's an episodic show. But during our, our entire podcast, Steve and I have, have realized that it actually works as a serialized show. And I'm even this one that we're about to dive into. But Laurie, I'm going to throw the first question to you that, like, what, what is your take on Day of the Dove? How have you felt about Day of the Dove for all these years? I mean, it's so funny because with the original series, everything's partially tainted with watching it as a kid. So that viewpoint I always have, which is like that slap on the back at the end, I thought was one of the greatest things ever. And we used to imitate it all the time when we were kids. <laughs> but my my view of this episode is I think it's a fantastic story. I think the moral could not be more relevant for what's going on right now in the world. Yep. Um, I think it has a lot. It shows like great Kirk stuff, great Spock. Everybody gets their own scene. Nurse Chapel isn't in it. Everybody else has a scene, which I yeah. like. Uh-huh. Um, and it has a lot of what I call season three isms, like little things that aren't really explained or maybe thought all the way through. And yet it's still, I think, a great episode from start to finish. That's Steve, how about you? So it's funny. There are a bunch of episodes, which obviously I watched many times and knew backwards and forwards. And this, strangely enough, wasn't one of them. I, I obviously had seen it a bunch, but not in a long time. And man... I agree, Lori. There is so much about this episode that is about this moment we're experiencing right now in time. And it was really powerful for me watching it this time. You know, those are great points, Laurie and Steve, because this is an episode that I have always loved. You know, Steve and I have talked many times about when we're doing these deep dives, like, and I go back and I rewatch the episode, there are certain episodes that you know, I really don't have to rewatch it because I just watched it like five days ago. And there are other episodes where I haven't seen in a really, really, really long time. And I rewatch it and I go, wow, there's a lot to take out of this these days. Like, like Miri is, is an episode I never really watched a whole lot, but when we did it for our deep dive, I was like, boy, this really fits in with what's happening now with like a pandemic. But regardless Day of the Dove was relevant, extremely relevant, as a peace message for 1968. And boy, is it relevant now with like everything else that is going on. So I agree there. But this is an episode I always felt was really, really exciting, invigorating. And the pace is just so like keeps doesn't slow down really for a minute until like act four. Uh it's a it's a fast-paced action adventure. And and of course, it features the first woman to play a Klingon with a speaking part, and that is Mara, played by Susan Howard. Uh, and she was the only woman to play a speaking Klingon in the original series. But it is Michael and Sarah's performance as Kang, which during this rewatch is one of the big revelations that I had with Day of the Dove. And the reason for that is that, and Sarah brought so much gravitas to the role as Kang. And unlike John Colicos as Kur, it was, it was Michael and Sarah's Kang who really set the standard and raised the bar for the portrayal of Klingons in the next generation and certainly every other series that followed. Uh, it was the blueprint for the nobility of the Klingons. And, and also Aunt Sarah had such a commanding presence uh, and, a, and a commanding voice. And uh, he's really the only other Klingon after John Kalikos' core 
who really was an equal to Kirk. Like I felt like Kor and certainly Kang were 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 on his level or even a threat because in the case of Kang, Michael and Sarah towers over William Shatner, <laughs> which is uh, something that he actually let happen. But of course, also Laurie and Steve, Day of the Dove, and this is really important, especially to me. Day of the Dove is photo novel number 10. Mm. And I have talked endlessly on the show, especially when we came to an episode that had a photo novel counterpart. Laurie, do you have the photo novels? Did you read them? Would you believe this? I have all of them except that one. We which got is crazy. I just went through my whole collection and I was like, what? Uh, and that is the only one that's missing. Oh, you're missing number 10. We got to fix that. <laughs> I got to get number 10. Maybe in Vegas, I'll see it. The thing about Michael and Sarah too, I thought he had such a Charlton Heston vibe in mm, this, like that. this commanding, owning the voice that silences the other voices in the room. And you're right. I do think he was the blueprint for next generation Klingons because he had a nobility. And as when we get into it, there are bits of dialogue that he has that, that we haven't heard from Klingons before. Absolutely. There are so many great quotable lines, and most of them are spoken by Michael and Sarah as Kang. I mean, look, I love John Colicos's core. And and originally the producers of Star Trek wanted Core to come back for Day of the Dove. And John Colicos wanted to come back because he read the script, but he mm. was overseas, presumably filming the movie Anne of a Thousand Days. And he was unable to return. But I think no, nothing against John Colicos's core because he was the one, the first one. But I just feel like Michael and Sarah took it to another level. So Day of the Dove, what I love about it, in addition to everything else and, and everything else we'll talk about, is that it was written by Jerome Bixby. And just seeing the name written by Jerome Bixby on an episode that has a lot of Three seasonisms, like you said, Lori, you know, where it's like, you know, the quality definitely suffered. And a lot of people have been gone, Finnerman and, and Bob Justman leaving. But seeing Bixby's name, he, of course, wrote Mirror Mirror and he co-wrote uh, By Any Other Name, which is an episode I love. They co-wrote it with, uh, with Dorothy Fontana. But when he submitted his story outline on March 28th, it was called For They Shall Inherit. When he revised his story outline on April 14th, that's when he changed the name to Day of the Dub. Uh, so Fred Freiberger proceeded all the way to a fourth revised story outline because when you when we get into it, you're going to hear like the original story was very very different and sounded a lot more expensive. And it was Freiberger who who said we got to tone this down and bring it in on a budget here. So Freiberger's outline polish came in on June third. Jerome Bixby proceeded to a second draft teleplay on August 9th. Arthur Singer did his rewrite, his final draft on August 15th. And then Freiberger did his script polish, his revised final draft on August 19th. This is the second episode directed by Marvin Chomsky, who previously directed And the Children Shall Lead. So I feel like, you know, this was a palate cleanser for him because he got to direct a really, really good episode. Uh, Day of the Dove aired on November 1st, 1968. It was the 62nd episode to air. It was the 67th episode to film, and it was filmed between the dates of August 22nd and August 29th. Now, here's 
something really cool that I did not know about Data Dove. So as you both know, and as everyone listening knows, the directors for season three were under a strict mandate to bring these episodes in in six days or else. Well, Day of the Dove came in at five and a half days. Five and a half days. So when the episode started filming on August 22nd, it actually started filming after lunch because in the morning, Tony Leader had to finish for The World is Hollow and I've Touched the Sky. So Day of the Dove also came in almost $4,000 under budget with a final cost of $174,735. The score was tracked from previous music. A lot of it came from Atlanta of Troyes, which was also a heavy Klingon episode. And the visual effects for Day of the Dove were provided by the Westheimer Company, which did the Klingon chip exploding, the Klingon transporter, which is still pretty cool to this day, and of course, the glowing, twirling, swirling alien entity. So very, very interesting stats about this one. Would you like to hear what's going on in the world when they're making this episode? Yes, absolutely. It's funny because there are some things in here that are as contentious in the world as they were both in this episode and really as things going on today. The first, as you said, it was filmed between August 22nd and the 29th of 1968. The first is that in Coswell County, North Carolina, the last remaining segregated school in the United States was ordered to integrate. Now, it might seem surprising to you that it takes so long after Brown versus Board of Education to integrate schools, but the fact is schools are almost as segregated today as they were back then. So we're still dealing with these issues. Wow. Uh, on August 24th, France became the fifth nation to explode a hydrogen bomb after the U.S., the Soviet Union, the United Kingdom, and China. Um, dissidents were arrested in Moscow on the 25th for protesting the invasion of Czechoslovakia. And now there are dissidents in Moscow protesting the invasion of Ukraine. Scott... You know what I'm going to ask you? There was a song released on August 26th, 1968. August 26th, 1968. I'm going to say that that song was something. Ah, oh, Scott, I I'm going to have down. to say you did not win Final Jeopardy this time. It was <laughs> Hey Jude was released on August 26th. It was that late. I didn't realize Hey Jude was that late. Well, it was... It was definitely the longest single ever released by anybody. Um, well, all right. You've redeemed yourself. With, with <laughs> on August 28th, and this is tragic and I'd never heard it before. The U.S. ambassador to Guatemala, John Gordon Maine, was assassinated. It's the first time an American ambassador had been murdered. Uh, we mentioned that the Democratic National Convention had started and talk about contentious on also on the 28th. Hubert Humphrey was nominated as the Democratic candidate for president. But right during his speech, the networks cut away from the Democratic National Convention because 15,000 anti-war protesters were marching down Michigan Avenue where they confronted the police or more accurately, the police confronted them with billy clubs and tear gas. And we heard the chant, the whole world is watching. Wow. Amazing. Seven months later, uh, the, the leaders of that protest, who had become known as the Chicago 7 or the Chicago 8, if you include Bobby Seale, uh, were indicted on federal charges of crossing state lines to incite a riot. And if you are more interested in this, I think Aaron Sorkin's film of the trial of the Chicago 7 is excellent. 
Yes, and well absolutely. Worth By the out. way, to to hear all this stuff about about the Democratic National Convention, and so so the cast and crew they're they're going to Paramount to film Star Trek, film Day of the Dove, which is definitely an episode with a very very big message. And they're hearing about all this. I mean, that must have been like very meta for them to be doing this episode while all this was going on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I mean, there's so much about that that conflict between the protesters and the police is, you know, two sides that cannot understand each other at all coming to blows. Report, Mr. Chekhov. Full scan. Results negative. Radiation level normal. No evidence of a colony nor any residual after effect of a forest that might have annihilated it. This is definitely a situation that you know is is uh you know there's a lot at stake because when the landing party beams down and it's really just one red shirt uh it's a you know david o ross as lieutenant lieutenant uh johnson previously galway yeah. um but they're <laughs> the way they're beaming down and they're sort of in a in a um in a position of uh like sort of attack position you know uh so uh, immediately you know that that something is up entire human colony whole settlement 100 men women and children why but there's no trace of anything and then right at that moment you see this twirling ball of energy like immediately so i want to deconstruct this episode a little bit because this is one where it's not always clear exactly what is really going on so let's be real clear about this there was no colony here correct right. correct correct so when they're looking around and we see plants and trees and there doesn't look like any destruction at all, they're already being fooled. So, yeah. So let's deconstruct this episode, starting with this like twirling ball of energy. Now, there is no mention throughout this episode of like what this thing was, where it came from, uh, even though there was a cut line from the screenplay that kind of does identify it, but it was never used in the final in the final version of the episode. But according to the book series, the Next Generation book series, the Q Continuum, the aliens did have an origin story there. But, you know, the books are great, but they're not canon. So I have a theory. I have a theory. Interesting, because about- I, have, I have theories too. So go ahead. I'm very curious. <laughs> okay. I so, have one as so, well. So, so, so <laughs> the, the cut line, the li- there was a line that was cut from the, from the screenplay that referred to the alien entity as the Tharn, and they could not control their violent impulses, so they destroyed themselves through war, and this entity was the last of its kind. Hmm. So, so uh, you know, entities destroying themselves was mentioned in And the Children Shall Lead, so that was one of the reasons why it was cut. But since it was cut, and we don't know what this alien energy force is, I have a theory, and my theory is that it is Red Jack. And here's why. Here's why. Laurie, here, check this out. So at the end of Wolf in the Fold, when Red Jack is beamed down into space, presumably uh, he just disappeared and died, and that was the end of it. And what did Red Jack do? Red Jack fed off of fear. That is where Red Jack gained his strength. Well, what if maybe... When Red Jack was beamed down into space, it mutated because it beamed down into space as an energy force. So now 
as it sort of regained itself, just like Nomad regained itself in the Changeling and was different, maybe now Rejack feeds off of violence. So I think for the purposes of Enterprise Incidents and trying to link episodes, I am linking Day of the Dove to Wolf in the Fold, and I'm linking this energy force to Rejack, and I'm saying that this energy force is a mutated version of Rejack. Now, since it was also capable of transmutation, do you think it merged with something the way Nomad did? Because that power had to come from somewhere. Exactly. Yes, I <laughs> absolutely do. Now, who knows what it could have mutated with or what could have uh, bonded with, but I was definitely thinking of the changeling because Nomad had a purpose, and when Nomad collided with the other, its purpose changed. So Rejack is out there. They're thinking it died, but maybe it didn't. Maybe it merged with some other energy force that had the power to not only feed off of violence, but to have this ability to change matter and also mess up with the minds and, and change the memories of, of the people so that they would fight more. So, but in some way, I'm just kind of going with this uh, theory that this is, this is actually Rejack. Scott, it's funny that you say that. I have a whole theory. It's, I think, so first of all, my feeling is that this is related to Red Jack, not necessarily the same creature. All right, can I let, are you ready? This yes. is a big one. Okay. <laughs> okay, let's hear it. <laughs> so this is a floating ball of energy, right? And there's later on in the episode, Spock says, you know, we've never seen anything like it. It's totally unfamiliar. And I'm like, well, it's not really totally unfamiliar <laughs> because we've seen the Organians are floating balls of energy. We've seen Trelane's people, they're floating balls of energy. The Charlie Evans people are probably floating balls of energy. Apollo, that's probably not really his body. So like, first of all, that's the idea that, th that at some point, we can evolve into total forms of energy seems to be something that happens in Star Trek. In fact, we even have the people that we meet from return to tomorrow. They in the process of doing that had a war and we have Henok versus Sauron. And what it seems like um, is that there's something really dangerous in this transition that it can go really, really bad. It could end up as the Organians, which is awesome, but it could also end up in a bad place. And so here's the thing I was thinking about. Who are the very first aliens we ever meet in Star Trek? From the cage, the Telosians. Yeah. And the Telosians have evolved way beyond us, and they have the power to create illusions and to mess with people's minds. But as they've done that, they've lost the ability to experience emotions. And so they're desperately trying to experience feelings that they can't experience on their own, right? Yeah. Well, it would seem to me that those guys are right before they're going to make that transition like we see in Return to Tomorrow. They are heading there. And that we also know that experiencing human emotions and feelings and sensations can be really dangerous because we've seen in Cat's Paw and by any other name that that could really mess you up. And so what if it's navigating this, this moment of how do I let go of human experience? That is the dangerous thing. You could either become Henoch or you could become the Organians. And what ha so I think this is what happened is that Rejack and this creature are ones who didn't navigate this transition well and that they become obsessed with specific human emotions that they need to feed off of, that they are the cautionary tale. And also you think about like Trelane, what's Trelane doing? I want to experience human feelings. 
He's in the same position, maybe one step beyond the Telosians, but not yet at the Organians. And so that's what I think. I think all of Star Trek has been leading towards this idea. And we have Spock, who is between logic and human emotions, is that we need human emotions somehow to navigate it as we evolve, or we're going to become Red Jack, or we're going to become this creature. Okay, see, now, I, I thought, like, I was, like, I was, like, going to just blow your minds here <laughs> with my Red Jack theory. And boy, Steve, you 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 top me in a, in a in a big way. But Lars, so the question is, like, have you ever given a lot of thought to like what this energy force could be? So instead of thinking about its history, I was struck as I watched this time thinking about its future, and mm. thinking about next generation and Armus is what I started thinking about. Oh. Okay. It, like, all right, evolved into something where it finally shed all that negative stuff and became the big you know, gooey black slime monster that killed Tasha uh-huh. um, and tried to eat Riker. Um, <laughs> then that, could, that to me was like the progression of it. So you guys were looking back and I was looking forward. Interesting. Not my favorite episode of Next Generation. <laughs> well, but not anybody's like, favorite episode. I, I, like, yes, the, I like the theory. Right. It makes right. a lot of sense. That does make a lot of sense. Sensors have picked up a Klingon ship closing fast. Like us on condition red. Protect yourselves. Total reply of attack. So that's the answer. Klingon. Trouble aboard the Klingon ship. Evidence of explosions. Massive destruction. And you can see in the in the version with the new visual effects that the Klingon ship is in is in a bad way. So I have another question now. What's happening on the Klingon ship? Is that real? Or is yeah, that I was an illusion? Ask, I really wanted to ask you guys that because we know that the colony is a complete illusion. Right. But Kang says 400 of his people have died. And they do end up blowing up the ship because it's leaking radiation. Right. So did that happen? And who was able to do that? Like, like what caused the Klingon ship to, to you know, be ready to explode? And, and who killed the, those 400 people? Well, and it's possible that nothing was making the Klingon ship ready to explode. It was all an illusion like this is. And that... Captain Kirk and the crew of the Enterprise killed those 400 people when they blew up the ship. Or oh. that there were never 400 other people. That's that was my too. other theory, was that there were, that wasn't such a big ship and there weren't 400 other people. Well, when the, when the Klingon ship approaches the Enterprise, it's, uh, there's explosions going on, and, and Kang says when they beam down, you know, 400 of my crew dead. Uh, like, something must have happened. Like, what caused the destruction like when the enterprise shows up at uh the planet is called beta 12a when the enterprise gets there the enterprise is fine but the klingon ship is ready to explode something attacked the klingon ship killing 400 of its crew what was it maybe maybe probably maybe but was it did it have something to do with the alien entity was was the alien entity affecting something else which attacked the klingon ship lots of questions here and just things to ponder because, of course, we we don't know the answers. But as uh, they're talking about the Klingon ship, so Kang beams down with with a few Klingons and walks right over to Captain Kirk and smacks him across the face, and he goes down. And Kang is pissed. Attack my ship! A hundred of my crew dead. Kirk, my ship is disabled. I claim yours. 
You are now prisoners of the Klingon Empire against which you have committed a wanton act of war. And one thing we see before the end of the teaser is that creature floating in space turns red. That is a great teaser. One of the great teasers, one of many great teasers of the original series. And Laurie, Steve and I have talked many times how when it came to those teasers, the original series really did it best. Yeah, I agree 100%. I mean, I also think the music they had on the original series was such a huge part of why they were so effective. Mm. The score always just punched it up. And this, I mean, there's so many familiar themes in the score in this one. But yeah, 100% the best teasers. Almost ruined me for other TV shows for the rest of my life. I mean, look, as much as I love Next Generation, you know, some of the teasers there are just kind of like, really, that's it? That's the setup? (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, nothing against Next Gen. So, but of course, Michael and Sarah plays Kang. Uh, He was born in Syria. And interesting to note that his second wife was Barbara Eden from I Dream a Genie. So on TV, Michael and Sarah was in shows like Broken Arrow, Wagon Train, Rawhide. He did do I Dream a Genie. He was a killer Kang in some episodes of Buck Rogers in the 25th Century, which is a show that I loved growing up. He was the voice of Mr. Freeze in Batman, the animated series. And of course, he reprised his role as Kang on both Star Trek Deep Space Nine and Star Trek Voyager. On the big screen, he was in films like Julius Caesar, the 1953 version with Marlon Brando, Princess of the Nile, the 1954 movie with future Captain Christopher Pike, Jeffrey Hunter. He was in Abner Costello, Meet the Mummy, The Lone Ranger. He had a small role in The Ten Commandments, and he was in the big screen version of Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. He also had another role in Deep Space Nine, right? Yes, he did. He did have another role in Deep Space Nine. So so it's like great that he gets to come back and, uh, you know, do the other shows with, you know, the makeup that we've come to expect from the Klingons. Now in the early version, like the early, early versions of day of the dove, when it was still in outline form, the enterprise is sent to evacuate a colony of Klingons from a border planet whose star is about to go Nova. Now the the whole Nova thing was like becoming a trope in season three, because, you know, we have uh, the sun about to go Nova in the empath. We have Sarpedon about to go Nova uh, Beta Niobe about to go Nova in all our yesterdays. But anyway, so the Klingons are found dead after apparently being tortured by a humanoid race called the Dorn. No relation to Michael Dorn. Uh, but, <laughs> or the Gorn. <laughs> or the Gorn. Uh, but they now want to pit humans and the remaining Klingon survivors against each other in gladiatorial games like Bread and Circuses and Gamesters of Triskelion. So safe to say that the uh, earlier versions of this story were thankfully rewritten uh, by Fred Freiberger and Bixby himself and even uh, Arthur Singer. Um, we come back in Act 1, and I'm just going to say this. I, we don't have to go into it, but I think the makeup on these Klingons is terrible. Oh, it, it, it looks awful, and there is some stuff that people might bring up about what that might mean, but we don't have to go into it here. But needless to say, even when I was a kid, I thought this looked terrible. Sorry, so what's your I. take on the makeup? Yeah, the makeup's horrible. It just looks greasy and stuck on and ineffective and cheap. Yeah, I I, I always thought that when you look back at Kor and the Klingons in Errand of Mercy, you know, they all had makeup on and and Kor had a Fu Manchu, you know, uh, but then when you get to like Friday's Child and, 
uh, and de- uh, the trouble with Tribbles. You know, the Klingons kind of lost their lost their bite. But with the between Kang Kang and you know Michael and Sarah's performance and the makeup in Day of the Dove, I feel like the Klingons looked threatening again. And I never minded the makeup, but I I know where Steve's going with that. Three years, the Federation and the Klingon Empire have been at peace. So he's saying it's been three years since the peace treaty that was established by the Organians Mm. after Errand of Mercy. And then he says something interesting. Treaty, we have honored to the letter. Really? (laughs) Well, Well, this is my question, though. Does Kang think they've honored it to the letter? He must believe in his in his mind, in his altered mind being affected by the alien force that they've evolved, that they, they followed it to the letter. Because how do you explain the Klingons sabotaging the Quadro Triticale in Trouble with Tribbles for Sherman's Planet? And how do you explain the Klingons furnishing the villagers with flintlocks in a private little war. So no, they did not follow this to the letter. And then there's like the presence of the Klingons in, uh, in Friday's child. No, they were, they did not follow it to the letter. They were still causing trouble. Well, we, ser- here's what, I'll, here's what I've been thinking about is that certainly you could say that he's just altered by the alien and that, and he knows that they've been cheating, but doesn't remember it. Right. You also could say that he totally believes it and doesn't know about that stuff. Because there's certainly time. We don't know everything that our government is doing all the time. And we've later found out stuff that our government was doing that maybe we go, oh, that wasn't really so good. <laughs> so it's and I kind of go, which episode is better? And to me, the episode where Kang really believes this not altered is actually better than the episode in which he's lying or is altered. I also think it fits in more with his character and who he is like he is a different kind of Klingon than we've seen for the most part. He has an integrity. He actually does. He's he's violent, but he has his own sense of I, not quite decency, but his own, yeah, a code. He has a code. And so I think the, the sneaky stuff would be not his thing at all. And he might even consider that rogue Klingons or something versus Klingon policy, so to speak. Yeah, it's it, and Laurie, it's that code that really stuck in my mind yeah. rewatching Day of the Dove that made me tie Kang to the Klingons, especially that we come to see in, in Next Generation after Ronald D. Moore really started, you know, getting his hands into the Klingon culture, uh, which are which are some of the finest episodes of Next Gen. Um, but but regardless, uh, uh, no, I, I I see what you're saying, Steve, with that. We took no action against your ship, Kang. And Kang's response is great. Were the screams of my crew imaginary? What were your orders, Kirk? To start a war, you've succeeded. To test the new weapon, we shall be happy to examine it. There was a Federation colony on this planet. It was destroyed. They're both in the same place. When Kang is interrogating the landing party and he walks in front of Kirk, uh, again, you know, just seeing the way that Kang just towers over Kirk, the way that Michael on Sarek towers over Shatner, just makes me afraid of this guy. Like, if I was Kirk, I'd be like, Oh, this this guy, I've, I've met my match. <laughs> that was such a noticeable shot and moment because also Shatner normally doesn't tend to look shorter than other people. Right. And I immediately Googled both of their heights when I, while I was watching that scene. And I was like, oh, and Sarah six, was 6'3", six, Shatner was 5'10". Because I, <laughs> I was thinking like, is that like a camera trick? Is that how they filmed it? You know, they chose the angle to do that. It's like they didn't have to. It was right there. I don't propose to spend the rest of my life on this ball of dust arguing your fantasies. 
The Enterprise is mine. Well, this is the, the dialogue in this episode is really good. Well, speaking of good dialogue, Kirk says, Go to the devil. We have no devil, Kirk. But we understand the habits of yours. I shall torture you to death, one by one, until your noble captain cries enough. And at this moment, as we're about to, we don't know what's going to happen next, and that creature, that alien, is turning even more red, we hear Chekhov say, Cossacks! You kill my brother, Peter! He lunges towards Kang, which is uh, pretty idiotic for him to do. Just like you did here. My brother, you kill my brother. Volunteer to join him. That is loyalty. Emotions for the Klingon to use their agonizer, which is what the you know the Empire had in Mirror Mirror. So the Klingons have these agonizers. So then I was thinking again during this rewatch. You know, we just covered Laurie. We just covered the Tholian web, and in the Tholian web, while the landing party is aboard the Defiant, the first Enterprise crew member to start falling prey to the fractured space that affected the Defiant. The first one. And by the way, they, the Defiant was was motivated to kill each other. So Chekhov is the first one who gets affected. Now here we are in Day of the Dove, and we have this energy force that is feeding off of violence and initiating the violence so it can feed off of more of it, like a vicious circle. And who's the first person to get affected here is Chekhov. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, as much as I like Chekhov, he's kind of got a weak mind. He's... Uh, <laughs> easily influenced by these well, outside forces. First of all, I love that you connected those things. That's awesome. The second thing, one of my questions is when you were young watching it or when it first aired, at what point do you think you start to go? Something's weird about our guys. Oh, in, in this episode. Yeah. Uh, well, right now, <laughs> definitely because, by now. Yeah. Because, because, you know, Chekhov was like, you know, especially the way he was first established in the beginning of season two as this like sort of protege to uh, to Captain Kirk, who had like a fatherly paternal relationship with with uh, with Chekhov in some ways. And also, you know, Chekhov was, of course, he was sort of brought in to bring in a younger audience. But but he was also a character that I saw myself in when I was a little kid because he was the youngest member of the crew. And in this episode, he was so, I mean, throughout the course of this episode, he's so very different. He's a, he's a violent person and he becomes more violent in a very disturbing way as this episode progresses. But it was with this moment when I see Chekhov lunging towards Kang, who was ba- basically twice his size. And I'm going like, yeah, something's way off here. I actually think it's, for me, it might even be earlier. The first thing is in the teaser, they're talking about the destruction of this colony and we're in plants and it just, something seems weird with that. But then also when Kirk hears about the Klingon ship, he says, you know, get ready to fight. Basically, he doesn't say hail the Klingon ship, which is what he would normally do. Mm -hmm. That would be the first move. He's always start with diplomacy and he always has in all other Star Trek, except this episode. And in my rewatch this time too, the fact that they... Get, they got there and there was no evidence that there had been yeah. a colony or a weapon mm. normally would have been a longer conversation. And yep. even though as a kid, I never made that connection. 
um, when you watch it now, you go, oh, yeah, like they would be stopping and saying, wait, why? Can we check the distress call? When did they'd be asking questions and trying to go back to those yeah. records and figure, are we in the wrong place? Did we end up in the wrong place? What happened? Sure, sure. Like, why is there not, there's not even like a mark of gunfire, you know? There's like nothing. There, it's nothing at all. This planet has right. been untouched. <laughs> well, it's not, and it's also, it's it's that there are trees and stuff there, which means that if there was a colony, the colony was destroyed and then plant life and all this other stuff was moved back in and everything was put back to normal. Yeah. That's, a, that's pretty weird. Yeah, those um, pink fluffy plants are like waving yeah. gently in the breeze. Yep. <laughs> but needless to say, Kirk is not cool with Chekhov being tortured. He stops it. Jim, you can't hand over the Enterprise. Don't plan any tricks, Kirk. I will kill 100 hostages at the first sign of treachery. I'll beam you aboard the Enterprise. Once there, no tricks. And that's the key word. Once there, no tricks. So Kirk flips open his communicator. Mr. Spark, we have guests. I just transported to Whitefield. Beam up everyone in the target area. And with a subtlety that could hit you <laughs> over the head with a yeah. sledgehammer, all right? <laughs> he puts his communicator down, you know, by his waist, and he's pushing a button that is alerting Spock that they are in trouble. But what I, the, while it, <laughs> it lacks in subtlety, I actually think it's a really cool scene. The way the camera then is on the arm of the chair and you see the light, the alert light flashing and it pans up to Spock who raises his eyebrow, says Understood, Captain. It's a great moment and I love the music. And we end up in the transporter room and strangely enough only I got our guys appear on the platform and part of which I go, it's not possible for them to actually beam up all of them at the same time. There are only so many paths so I'm not sure what they were going to do anyway. All <laughs> right. And by the way, when when the landing party beams up with the Klingons, the alien entity moves into the position where the where the mm. landing party was at, and it just like disappears. It doesn't right. like, you know, there's no visual effect to show that it was like beamed up with them. It's just like, well, let's just have it disappear. <laughs> just like that. <laughs> that's and a that's a that's budgetary a, move. Yeah. I was gonna say that's what I mean by a season threeism yeah. as well. Yeah. <laughs> Our landing party is intact, Doctor. All others suspended in transit. Who are the guests, by the way? Klingons. Well, they're right in here. Leave them where they are. Non-existence. That's so many less Klingon monsters in the galaxy. That, for me, when I was a kid, that was my big clue. Yeah. Like, I don't think I got it in that first scene when I was little. But I, because I started watching young, but um, I do think that that, for me, the minute he said that, and Kirk doesn't say anything back to him. Yeah, he kind of right. Should he should say respond. leave any bigotry in your quarters. Right. There's just no room yeah. for it here in the on the, in the transporter, the transporter room. room. <laughs> um, well, I also think it's interesting when we do beam the Klingons. Apparently, there are controls on the transporter to decide which way people are facing <laughs> yes. because all the Klingons are facing the other way. But there's also a function for them to be in transit which is what saves the moment for them anyway by allowing the landing party to beam through and get ready with more security yeah. uh, until so that they can take care of the Klingons when they all beam in. And I just like that for this moment, uh, we actually see security acting like security. Mm. And you know what I mean? Like they, they jump right in and before the Klingons can react, they move them off the transporter room, take their weapons away, get them out of there. And Kang just jumps down off the transporter room, gets right into Kirk's face, and he says, Liar! I said no tricks after we reached the ship. 
I think two things. One is there is a trick. Clearly, there was a trick on the ship. And two is <laughs> I think when people have captured you and are torturing you, you you can lie. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. lying is perfectly acceptable at that point. Right. Um, and we get a little bit more information. One is that there's still survivors aboard the Klingon ship. It's putting out a lot of radiation. We also hear that communications have been blocked. And there's too much radiation coming from that Klingon ship. It's a hazard to the vicinity. Prepare to destruct. Completing the job you started. You wouldn't be standing here if I had. First group from the Klingon vessel, Captain. There are so many great moments like that. You know, there's dialogue which really jumps out at you. And there's dialogue that's just as effective, that's a little more subtle. And the restrained way in which Kirk says, you wouldn't be standing here if I had. I think it's a great delivery. And then the rest of the Klingons, the first group of Klingons are beamed aboard from the soon-to-be-destroyed Klingon vessel. And that is where we see on the platform, not just one, but two women, two female Klingons. And as security motions them off the transporter platform, one of them goes right to Kang's side. My wife, Mara, and my science officer. Mara is played by Susan Howard. She is an Emmy nominee for 1974's Petrocelli for Outstanding Supporting Actress in a Drama Series. She was also on TV in The Virginian, Bonanza, Mannix, Love American Style, among other things. And for many seasons on Dallas, she played Donna Culver Krebs, and she also wrote some episodes of Dallas. It's very cool. Um, I also think it's cool that she's the science officer, by yeah. the way. I what do you think, Laurie, of Mara? Well, I also, I loved her outfit, by the way. She had like these shorts that I thought were super cool. Um, no, she was a great character. Um, and we'll, we'll get like later, her later scenes, I think, get even really more interesting. But I love that she was the science officer also. Um, and the, and that she came right up and she's the one who who has heard of these atrocities that she thinks that the Federation is responsible for. I've heard of their atrocities, their death camps. They will torture us for our scientific and military information. And I'll ask the same question. Has she, in fact, heard of atrocities in Federation death camps before this incident? I assumed in that case that she had because it makes sense. I think so, too. That these enemies would not know things about each other. Well, and that's a, a classic tactic of war and conflict is to tell lies about the other side. They're inhuman. They're awful. They're torturing people. That's how you motivate people to fight wars. And Kirk even says later in the episode, well, first here he says, apparently you have a few things to learn about us. And later he alludes to, you've just been hearing propaganda. Propaganda was definitely prevalent in, you know, in, in Berlin in uh, the 30s when it came to Hitler's growing power. So I think that this is actually true, that this is not in her head, that the Klingons yep. have actually propagated this image of, of Starfleet and the Federation. And again, it fits in with what's going on right now, because we are filled with propaganda right now. There's all Everybody's very clear on what the other side is doing. That's for yep. the other side. I find in our discourse, everybody's like, you're doing this, and the arguments are all based on, I'm going to have my own supposition about what I think you're doing, and then I'm going to attack you for it. Yep. And I think it's more than that, because I think we live in our own truth silos, and we're constantly fed information, and this is regardless of left, right, conservative, liberal, whatever, we are all fed information that matches our worldview and not hearing information that matches other people's worldview. And that is making us increasingly, increasingly angry at each other. 
Yep. And as we head out in the into the corridor, we're going to see something we see all the time, which is this alien just leaving just before we get there or just showing up just after we leave. We're going to see it over and over again throughout the show. And Spock already is sensing something's not right because he says, At the moment we received the distress signal from the colony on Beta 12A, the Klingons were too far distant to have been the attackers. Moreover, they also were apparently attracted by a distress call. They get in the, tr- in the, in the turbo lift. Chekhov is still really angry. Lies. They want to start the war by pretending that we did. Chekhov may be right. Klingons claim to have honored the truce, but there have been essence raids on our outposts. No proof that the Klingons committed it. And McCoy, who I think is definitely under the influence of the entity. Absolutely. Oh, right? Yeah. What proof do we need? know what a Klingon is. So a couple things here, Steve. You mentioned that Spock is already kind of on to something here. This made me think with this uh, new appreciation of the original series, that Day of the Dove really is a standout episode is because, remember we were talking about the devil in the dark and they were trying to figure out what was going on in the in the mines, like what was killing the miners, and, and they're in Vandenberg's office and Spock is looking at this silicon nodule and he's already formulating something and and here you have spock already sort of ahead of where everybody else is spock knows and is accepting more than the others that something is not right here and there is more way more here than meets the eye and and the stakes are much much bigger than we are even we can even wrap our heads around at the moment so i think there's a there's an element of devil in the dark here with that approach of Spock sort of like already sort of formulating a theory, the beginnings of a theory, but not quite putting it out there like he did uh, in such a poor way in an episode like, and the children shall eat. But I, I think that, that Spock is doing that. I think Kirk is already challenging, thinking things are going through his mind already. Like something's off. He's always giving Chekhov a look. There's something going on. And I, I like to think that McCoy was sort of his mind was maybe weakened a little because when Chekhov was injured, his his doctor-ness came forth and he went down and the he saw that brutality. And in a way that opened the door, I think, for the influence. I'm sure I'm adding more than was there. But in my mind... Welcome to Enterprise. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I love my McCoy. And the, the look on his face is so unlike we've seen before. So I think it's obviously he's been affected and now we know why, whereas Kirk and Spock are still like parsing out the lot, the logic and the events of, that have happened. So several things. The first is Scott, Scott building on what you said about Chekhov. I think we could say that McCoy's mind is also been weakened because he just had a fatal disease that he was cured from in the last episode when the world is hollow, the world is hollow and I have touched the sky. And that was after he was uh, brought to the brink of death by the Vians, saved yeah. by Jim and saved by the Vians themselves well, in the end. So he's been through a lot. <laughs> yeah. The other thing, though, is I think while it makes perfect sense that Spock would be the least affected by this alien, it also, to me, is Kirk is showing his effects because he should be thinking about what happened in Arena and the destruction of that colony. And, oh, there was more to that story than I thought. I should immediately be questioning what's going on here. But he's not really doing it that much. Our log tapes will indicate our innocence in the present situation. Unfortunately, there's no guarantee that they will be believed. Laurie, you mentioned the look that Kirk gives Chekhov. So when the turbo lift doors open to the bridge, 
and Kirk is about to exit the turbo lift. I, I never really quite noticed this before, but Kirk is sort of staring down Chekhov, who's like staring straight ahead. He's not engaging Spock or Kirk. He's just like angry. He's in another world. And Kirk is looking at him going like, something is wrong with him. I got to keep an eye on this guy. And then he exits the turbo lift. I felt that very much too. And again, also that line of Kirk's, no guarantee they'll be believed. Again, 2022. Yep. We're right there again. Yep. Oh boy, are you right? Wow. Holy moly, are you right? Still no contact with Starfleet Command, sir. Outside communications blanketed. Keep trying. We've got a diplomatic tiger by the tail. Can I just tell you guys, this was the first episode I watched since Nichelle Nichols died. Mm. Okay. And so when they walked into the bridge... I was very surprised. I had a very strong emotional reaction and it caught me by surprise. I think about the fact I've seen all these episodes 20,000 times over the course of my entire life. And I got quite emotional. Like I had to stop for a second because it was, it was a a jarring moment. And then I was so happy that she got some stuff to do in this episode. And, you know, Laurie, uh, I know you did your own uh, tribute to Nichelle Nichols on, on all access and uh your your podcast for trek movie and you know we just did ours like literally yesterday and i had that reaction too because steve after we recorded our our remembrance of michelle nichols i went and i watched day of the dove to prep for today and i had the same reaction laurie like when they walk off the bridge and the horror just in her absolutely professional manner still nowhere from starfleet and kirk says keep trying uh I just went, oh, Michelle. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, I totally get that. Um, we've totally evacuated the Klingon ship and Sulu locks phasers on and we destroy the Klingon ship. Now, I actually think that this is just the writers didn't really actually figure out why the Klingon ship had had damage and what happened there. But I still will say there is some possibility that there were 400 living Klingons on that ship when the Enterprise blew it up. Wow. First of all, if that's true, if the alien already had enough of a hold on the Klingons themselves to make them think that 400 of their own had died and that that was something that Kirk and Spock and the landing party from the Enterprise believed and that Kirk firing the phasers actually killed 400 Klingons, like that's – well, Doc, that's heavy. And I don't think that's what it is. I think that the writers just went, "Ah, no one's going to pay attention. Let's move on, you know? (laughs) Right. When I take the ship, I'll have Kirk's head stuffed and hung on his cabin wall. And they talk about the difference in uh, manpower. It's 40 against 400. And one of the Klingons says, 4,000 throats may be cut in one night by a running man. Great line. What? I mean, a very tired running man, though. <laughs> yeah, it's a, a lot. It's a lot of throat slitting. <laughs> I hope he um, runs quickly and he's, you know, done some marathons to train before. He- by the yeah, way, but- I, I, I had a buddy who was a, a, a Marine and part of Force Recon, which is like, you know, the seriously scary guys. And in training, there was a thing where they were all out uh, in the field and went to bed and they were told that someone might attack their camp. And they all woke up and like 30 guys woke up with black marker across all of their throats because oh. one of the Marines went through and demonstrated exactly what this guy just said. Holy Think about Toledo. how scary that is. That is definitely scary. Yeah. Yep. But I love Kang's response. He says, patience, vigilance. It will make the mistake 
And he also says he wants to end the war quickly, which is Oh, that's right. Right. He says they want to end the war quickly, which makes me, again, you get the integrity, you get the code. Mm -hmm. Like, Kang wouldn't want endless war. He wants to win and triumph, but it's not the the battle that's the part for him. Right. He wants the, the victory and he wants to get there as fast as possible. But we are back on the bridge and there's a there's a wide shot on the bridge and you see the alien entity descend on the bridge and turn red. And as it turns red. This doesn't make sense. Harry's are normal. Channels are open. There's still no outside contact. I don't understand it, sir. Could the Klingons be doing something? And then at that moment, the Enterprise shudders. And I love that look on Kirk's face. He just like turns around and like, now what? And then you see the Enterprise go off course. It, it's already out of control. The engines, sir, they've gone to one line by themselves. It's interesting, by the way, to me that the shaking stops in midline and smooths out. I never quite understand what's going on and that their new course is going to take them again out of the out galaxy. Out of the galaxy. Course 902 Mark V. But what's interesting is uh, in Is There in Truth No Beauty, when Marvick went down to engineering after he was driven mad by looking at the Medusa ambassador, you know, he moves the few controls and the Enterprise is thrown off course and in like, you know, less than 20 seconds is in the void outside the galaxy, right? Uh, But in Day of the Dove, it takes them the whole course of the episode and they never get to the end of the galaxy. So maybe they were on the other side of the galaxy in the Delta Quadrant. I don't know. (laughs) They were on one end and they were heading to the other end. Right. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Who who knows? The the big thing to me, and it happens all the time, is we've obviously proven that the Enterprise can actually travel a lot faster and they never go, man, we should really work out how that works. Yeah, Um, sure. (laughs) uh, And then as lights are blinking, we hear that emergency bulkheads are closed and almost 400 crewmen are trapped below. And I just like Shatner's Shatner's performance here. He just kind of stands there for a moment trying to like gather his thoughts on everything that just happened. They just destroyed the Klingon ship. Now they're being thrown off course. The bulkheads have closed, trapping 400 crewmen below decks. And he enters the turbo lift. And I love this edit. Kirk gets into the turbo lift. And the very next shot is a close-up on Kang's face. And he has a smile. He is amused. Most interesting. That's so good. The bulk of your crew trapped, your ship racing from this galaxy at wild speeds. Delightful. Delightful. Yeah. And, and then he asks, How did I perform this sabotage, Kirk? All my men are here. And maybe Kirk's like, well, maybe there's some other Klingons that beamed over undetected. And before I put you on the brig, there's a little something I owe you. And he winds up. He winds up and throws his punch at Kang so hard that Kang falls back and is caught by the two other Klingons. Laurie, what did you think of this moment? And how did this the, the impact of this moment to you change from when you were watching this as a kid to watching this now? Yeah, I think as a kid, it felt like, oh, he's just mad. He's punching him. Men do that. Yeah. And then... Scott <laughs> and I do that all the time. Right. Like, oh, men, punchy men. But of course, like watching it now, you realize that's the that's the beginning of seeing that Kirk is slowly being affected because he was talking about diplomacy like five minutes earlier. 
Right. I, I agree. I think the same, like when I was a kid, I just thought like, oh, there's, there's, you know, the bravado of Captain Kirk, you know, shoot first, ask questions later, you know, just, just being a macho guy, you know, punching the Klingon in the face after he punched him in the planet. And, but watching it now, I just went, nope, that's very unKirkish. It was definitely something brought on by the alien entity. But what happens next changes the game once again kang falls back and looks down at and i think it looks like a game or something on the table that suddenly transforms into a sword and kirk and all of his people have phasers and the phasers suddenly transform into swords but it makes that sound that bong ah <laughs> uh, the bong the bong you know I that bong that that, that uh, you heard all the time when Trelane was using his power you heard it in the beginning of uh, a spock's brain when the crew was knocked out i love that sound i've always been a big fan of that sound what does kang do when he sees what's going on kang grins and kirk looks sick to his stomach i yes. thought that was such a nice combination like kang is like this is perfect oh and yeah kirk is like oh no well, so, it's like you're right mm-hmm. like kirk like you can see that he's at first he's bracing himself making sure that no one's going to attack him but then he like takes a second he looks down at the sword and he's like what the heck is going on here and that's the end of act one we come back at act two in the same spot right into a fight and kirk and his men make a very tactical retreat into the hallway uh one guy gets hit and goes down and they drag him into the turbo lift. Can I disagree with you about the sword fighting for a moment? (laughs) (laughs) I felt like that was one of the very weakest points of the whole episode was all the sword fighting really just looks like everybody's trying to hit everybody else's sword. Well, I'll tell you why that happened, Laurie. There was a, there is a reason for the ineffectiveness of the sword fighting while look, just taking it from a point of, of a TV show airing in 1968, I accept it for what it is. It, mm-hmm. it, I, I, I never really believed, even though Johnson took one in the heart, and that was the crewman who fell backwards, uh, I never believed that anyone was really going to get hurt during a sword fight. But Laurie, the reason that the sword fights in Day of the Dove are, for lack of a better word, lame, is because NBC, the studio, was worried about the sword fights. They were in touch with with Paramount and with Freiburger. And they said, okay, you want to have a sword fight? That's fine. But you cannot show the swords penetrating anybody's body. You cannot see any bloodshed coming from the sword during an impact uh, with one of the one of the other bodies, whether it's the Klingons or the or the Enterprise crew. So so that is why during the filming of the sword fight scenes, Laurie, they kind of had to pull their punches. I completely agree with you. They're not as effective as they could have been, but they, uh, given the restrictions in which they were filmed, I thought it was fine. I still think when you look at, let's say, fencing later in Next Generation, obviously they had someone who knew about fencing who came and trained them. And in this case, I just felt like nobody looks like they're even aiming. They all just look like they're trying to hit the other sword. So, I mean, I forgave it. And as a kid, it was just, that's what sword fighting was to me as a kid anyway. So it fit in nicely. But as an adult, it just looks pretty lame. Yeah, it's 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 pretty lame. It looks like kind of classic stage combat style. And uh, having done some fight choreography, uh, Scott, I actually disagree because you could do all sorts of great fight choreography that doesn't have people stab each other. 
you know, and, and, and one of the keys, Laura, you're absolutely right. You shouldn't look like you're aiming at the sword. That is a big, <laughs> big mistake. The Klingons are free. Armed as we are, they'll try and take the ship. Scotty, how many men do we have? 392 trapped below decks. Deploy forces to protect your section and the auxiliary control center. Check the armory and try and free those trapped crewmen. The doors and bulkheads won't budge. We'll have to cut through. Blow out the bulkheads if you have to. We need numbers. Another sort of revelation I had rewatching Day of the Dove is that, Steve, when we were talking about Charlie X and the Changeling, Roddenberry wanted, you know, the, the, uh, Notes that he gave the writers of those episodes, Dorothy Fontana for Charlie X and John Meredith Lucas for The Changeling, is like he's like, make make it to be that the Enterprise turns into a hell ship. Mm. Well, in Day of the Dove, no question, more than any other episode, in fact, the Enterprise turns into a hell ship. Klingon Empire has maintained a dueling tradition. They think they can beat us with swords. Which means he thinks this is a Klingon strategy. But what I like about this moment is that Kirk goes up to Spock and he's, you know, just had an encounter, a violent encounter with the Klingons in the sword fight. He's standing there calmly analyzing the sword. He's looking down at the sword. He's not making eye contact with Kirk. Captain, neither the Klingon technology nor ours is capable of this. The instantaneous transmutation of matter. And then... He says, and if they had this power, why wouldn't why would they make this even? Why wouldn't they give themselves superior weapons and us nothing? And that gets through to Kirk. Also, Spock has had more time to be Kirk's caught in the action, and he's yeah. basically spends the whole episode running from one place to the next, trying to contain what's going on. And Spock is the one who has a little more time to process and think about it. But I feel like you can see the wheels in Kirk's brain turning the whole time throughout sure. the whole episode yep kirk gives sulu some orders who actually gets to get up from the helm and go <laughs> do something which he hasn't gotten to do that much lately um but it's not just sulu who wants to go Chekhov gets up and he wants to go Captain. mr Chekhov, as you were check off sir let me go too i've got a personal score to settle with the klingons this is no time for a vendetta maintain your post I think this scene gets really intense and both of them do a really good job. I agree too. And, you know, just, it was upsetting to me, like as a kid to see Chekhov. So not like himself. Don't try to stop me, Captain. I saw what they left of Pyotr. I swore on his grave I would avenge his murder. Gets into the turbo lift. What's Chekhov's grudge against the Klingons? Who's Pyotr? His only brother killed in a Klingon raid. His brother? He never had a brother. He's an only child. And, you know, they're sitting right next to each other, the navigation and the helm, all this time. They've gotten to know each other a little bit over the course of a five-year mission. So I love that Sulu was saying he doesn't have a brother. He's an only child. I love it, too, and for, and for the same reason, which is what it does between this and maybe a little bit of a moment in the deadly years and maybe one or two other moments is, in my head canon, Sulu and Chekhov are really good friends. Yep. Yeah, I felt exactly the same way. I thought it was a great moment that showed that they've talked, that they have a closeness. And that's because Sulu is so casual about it. Too. Like, what is he talking about? So it's not like, oh, I feel like he told me one time. It definitely indicates, implies that they've had a longstanding friendship. Yep, for sure. And I think they're doing a very good job of laying out this mystery piece by piece and building on it as we go. Um, because Uhura then says, Captain, why would 
Why would Chekhov believe he has a brother? I don't know, but he does. And now he wants revenge for a non-existent loss. And the way Uhura goes over the Captain Kirk comfortably, that she that she has that comfort level with him, that even though this is a, a very action-packed episode and definitely a little over the top in some ways, there is a lot of really good moments among the crew. And I feel like the way that they are acting with each other now is very different than if this episode would have aired earlier, like let's say the first season, because they've been, you know, they're, they're into basically the fifth year because the star date begins with a five. So they're into the fifth year of their five-year mission. And there's a closeness there that has been deepened by so many events like the ones we just saw on the Tholian web and the empath and that Uhura went up to Kirk and expressed her concern because, you know, he's more than just Captain Kirk to me. Uh, she she feels a, a kinship with him. And then we see Chekhov in the lower decks, which brings me to my question. Okay. So if you're looking at a blueprint of the Enterprise, okay, so the alien entity has trapped 400 crewmen below decks. Well, when you're on the bridge, I mean, the bridge is as high as you can go. But when you get to the transporter room and sickbay and definitely engineering, you're going much, much further down below into the secondary hall of the Enterprise. So where exactly are these 400 crewmen? <laughs> yeah, doesn't make sense. Yeah. <laughs> well, I actually have a, I have a different question is that I know so many people maybe listening to this show have whatever version of the Star Trek Enterprise blueprint specs sitting there. When did those get created? Because I don't think they had them when they were actually making the show. Yeah, I don't think so either. Well, well, the, the, the Star Trek blueprints that I have, I got when I was like seven or eight years old in the mid 70s. So those were the first time that was the first time I got it through a uh, I got it through. No, wait, I got it in 1977 because I ordered them by cutting out the back coupon of one of those Star (laughs) Trek poster books. And that remember those poster books, Laurie? Oh, my God. I had them like with sticky text stuck to my ceiling after I finished reading them. I would always use the poster. But and the blueprints, they came in a pouch, right? Yeah, they came in a pouch. pouch. And I remember when I was uh, in my bedroom, uh, I think it was might have been poster book number six, where you unfold it, and it was that image of the Enterprise from from above being trapped by the Tholian web. Yep, yep. And I had yep. that on my wall in my bedroom, but I got a coupon on the back, and that's how I ordered the blueprints. And then, of course, I think it was in sometime in the mid '90s when when they had like this really lavish poster detailing all of the decks on the Enterprise. But anyway, in the case of Case of Day of the Dove, this is something that they did not think through. <laughs> right. Um, we're in sickbay, and man, is as bad as it is watching Chekhov not behave like himself, watching McCoy not behave like the compassionate McCoy we're used to, it's really rough. Something butchers. There are rules, even in war. You don't keep hacking on a man after he's down. The interesting thing there is that he says it about Johnson, who was only stabbed once. Yeah, it's a great point. DeForest Kelly, we have pointed out his strengths as an actor so many times. And that's another one of the revelations of doing this podcast, Laurie, is that, you know, when we look at his performance in like For the World is Hollow, in The Empath, 
especially in the deadly years when he's turning older, he's excellent. And even in shore leave, when he made the motion to uh, sort of bring back that old country doctor uh, accent, Southern accent. And in this episode too, uh, but it's, it's disturbing to see McCoy just so racist. Um, we're back with the Klingons and they're, they're discussing their, basically their battle plan as they look at specs of the enterprise. So they obviously got copies of the blueprints. <laughs> I don't know if they got Maybe that through the poster, book, the poster book. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, then we take this ship, the ship that is headed towards the end of the galaxy. And Kang being very wise says in time and time. It's exactly what Kirk would say. Basically, we solve the problem we can in front of us, and then we move on to other stuff. We cut to Scotty. We seem to be in a room that we're not quite sure where it is. There's no use trying to free those men down below. The phaser torches, they won't cut through the bulkheads, nor the doors, nor the decks. There's something happened to the metal. What about the armory? Well, I'm there now, sir. Camera pulls back. And the armory is full of swords and halberds and spears. That is a great cut, the way the camera pans back, just as Scotty is saying. And you never saw such a fine collection of antiques in your life. It's such a well, well-directed scene on the part of Marvin Chomsky. And then Scotty closes his communicator. He notices one of the swords. He picks it up with pride. You're a beauty. What's interesting, and I never noticed this before, but the swords that each of the crew members use, you know, the primary crew members that that we know, were designed to match their backgrounds and their heritage. For example, Kirk is using an 18th century Navy outclass. Chekhov is using a Cossack broadsword. Scotty is using a Scottish claymore. Sulu is using a Japanese katana. And the rest of the Enterprise and Klingon crewmen are using Roman gladius with at least one mace, a medieval broadsword, and a scimitar. Really interesting stats about those swords, the way they match them with the, the backgrounds of the, uh, of the crew members. Any signs of those devils, Mr. Sulu? All clear, Mr. Scott. And there, of course, are the Klingons crawling into attack. So our defense wasn't really very good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they didn't really look very hard because they had to get up there. And I think nobody, if you could get in that way, maybe they could have looked to see if there was somebody coming. Right, exactly. <laughs> um, and needless to say, they attack. Scotty fights his way back out through the door. And there's Sulu who takes a dude out with the good old karate chop. I hate that. I hate that. Well, it's not only that. So that's really bad. But did you notice what's going on behind them is another security guy. He literally hits a Klingon on the arm and the Klingon falls to the ground. And I saw that this time. Yeah. (laughs) This this red shirt who has no lines. Right. Hits the Klingon in the arm. and He's knocked unconscious. Yes. And then Sulu comes in with the judo chop. Yeah. I I like, come on. Did you like, really? I mean, I know it's 68, but come on. And I mean, technically, who should be the ve- the best fencer on the Enterprise? Sulu should be Sulu. Right. That's his hobby. He practices right. fencing. Um, yeah, it's a it's a lost opportunity. Let's just put it that way. No additional Klingons detected, Captain. It is an alien life force. I cannot ascertain its location. An alien life force. 
must make contact. Contact, communication. That is what Kirk attempts to do or thinks he can do. And, and this is where we sort of review. A brother that never existed, a phantom colony, imaginary distress calls, the creation of these weapons. Do you sense a pattern, Mr. Spock? If the alien is creating these events, Captain, it is apparently capable of manipulating matter and mind. I think this line is really important. You know, we already talked about it at the beginning of this episode. I think we should all be thinking about this today. Spock says, I am constrained to point out that since minds are evidently being influenced, we cannot know at this moment whether our own memories are completely accurate and true. I think we should change our own memories to the news and the stuff that we see in the world, particularly if it's on social media. You should be checking whether or not what you see is true. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Amen to that. (laughs) And not just accusing people that you don't like of seeing things that aren't true. You have to look at your own stuff. Yep. I also think, and that's the main point of the whole episode is today you have to think about who benefits from us being in such opposition to each other. That's a great, great point. And Kirk says, as McCoy is entering, we must talk to Kang, bury the hatchet. McCoy, like like that was the last thing he needed to hear when he walked on the bridge from the turbo lift. And McCoy goes off. Truce. Are you serious? I got to say, you know, you said it before. Man, DeForest Kelly can play a horrible, angry, evil, scary, racist dude really well. Yeah. I've got men in sickbay. Some of them dying. Atrocities committed on their persons. And you talk about making peace with these fiends. If our backs would turn, they'd jump us in a minute. And you know what Klingons do to prisoners. Slave labor, death planets, experiments. While you're talking, they're planning attacks. This is a fight to the death. We'd better start trying to win it. And he even says, uh, how many men have to die before you start to act like military men instead of fools? Ouch. And Kirk's just looking at him like, what has happened? He's fully noticing that something has happened to McCoy in a big way. It's a really upsetting moment. It was particularly upsetting for me watching it this time. And he exits out, and we hear now from Kang. Marvin Chomsky's direction of this episode, especially when it came to Kang, was very cinematic. When we cut to the moment on the bridge after the Enterprise is taken off course, and then we go to the 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 room where all the Klingons are being held, and you see the look on, it's a close-up on Kang's face, and he's smiling, most interesting. So in this case, when Kirk hears the hail and you see the camera pan up to Kang's face and that that dramatic music, and he's almost smiling. And Kirk tries to talk to him. Kang, there's something important I must discuss with you. I have captured your engineering section. Now control the ship's power and life support systems. I have deprived all areas except our own. We'll die of suffocation icy cold of space well and that line i mean did you not did that not echo throughout both of your childhoods (laughs) like that line you will die of suffocation in the icy cold of space and that again like charlton heston like voice and the music comes and it was such a big i feel like it's one of the most classic moments great end to act two and you're right the way the lights come down on the bridge and Mm -hmm. kirk and uhura and uhura Uhura comes down off from her station and is looking for comfort from Captain Kirk, which makes me think of the line 
that she says in the next episode, Plato's stepchildren, when they're being you know, forced to kiss by the Platonians. And she says, I see you on the bridge. And, and she's making that comment about how you know, she's letting her guard down by saying how she really feels about Captain Kirk. And I think that this moment is what she's thinking about when she mm. makes that comment in Plato's stepchildren because it just happened. We come back in Act 3, and by the way, we should say that part of how we're seeing that the life support is gone is that the, a lot of the lights have gone off. It's a good <laughs> sure. visual metaphor. And after Log, Kirk sends Sulu uh, to get the life support systems back online. And as he heads to the turbo lift, the door opens, and Scotty enters looking totally crazed. Scotty, check over the late Captain. I'm glad they We should have left those fuzz-faced goons in the transporter. That's right where they belong. Scotty. Non-existence. And what's interesting, too, it's not just that he's angry at the Klingons. He turns on Captain Kirk. Mm-hmm. Now they can study the Enterprise, add our technology to theirs, change the balance of power. You've jeopardized the Federation. And then Spock comes over and, and boy, does his tone change in an equally effective but just as violent ways. Keep your fucking hands off me. I mean, Scotty is far gone. He's just, you know, checked out at this moment. Your feelings might be hurt, you green-blooded half-breed. Which is kind of close to what Kirk was calling him way back and what little girls are made of. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And where that time it was clear evidence to Spock that something was not right, this time... It's now finally Spock that's being effective. And I got to say, as upsetting as Chekhov was, as upsetting as racist McCoy is, as crazed as Scotty is in this moment, there is nothing quite so scary as calm Spock saying, May I say that I have not thoroughly enjoyed serving with humans. I find their illogic and foolish emotions a constant irritant. I have a question for both yeah. of you. Is Spock telling the truth? Totally. Absolutely. Yes. He has found that an irritant. What do you think, Laurie? I I mean, it's a chilling moment for sure because of the the even tone that he has when he says it. But yeah, 100 percent. I I agree. I think he's I think he's telling the truth. I just think that the alien is affecting his mind for him to actually say how he was really feeling because, you know, Vulcans are incapable of lying that that so we've been told. But clearly we know, not true. We, yeah, not right, true. exactly. Yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, but it's amping it up. Like I think it's something that he always feels. Like because yep. if you think yeah. about what the words he uses, I've not always enjoyed it. Isn't if you change the tone of your voice when you say that, it doesn't sound so terrible. Right. But it's all now it's it's something, it's that thing that you think about that suddenly you've decided you're justified in being much angrier about. Completely well, agree. I think, A, this is what's going on throughout the episodes, is that the Klingons have heard about death camps and experiments, and McCoy has heard about raids, and they all these things have truth in them, but they're all being amplified, and again, I'm going to apply it to our world today. There's some truthiness in there sometimes, and it's being amplified to make us angry and afraid. Yep. And Scotty says, Then transfer out, freak! Ouch! Ouch, Scotty is just, you know, dropping these bombs left and right. And he raises his sword. Spock grabs him by the wrist. And man, 
he is about to punch down on Scotty in a way that I I picture whatever that metal thing he crushed in this side of paradise is about to happen to <laughs> Scotty's head. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. He, and he does so much with so little. It's not a big gesture. Mm-mm. And yet it conveys all this this violence and anger. It's it's beautifully done. I remember remember when in uh, a mock time when Uhura was hailing Spock that, uh, hey, we're going back to Vulcan. And he goes over to the monitor. He's like, let me alone. And boom, yep. boom, boom. Like, yep. he's going to do that to Scotty just now. <laughs> uh, and Kirk steps in and says, I don't know why he says you're half human. It's a strange yeah. line. I don't know. Would you think, oh, because you're going to hit a human? And it, you, I don't know. It, it doesn't quite work for me. Um, and then he said, and then he drops his hands after this moment and says, what are we saying? What are we doing to each other? And Scotty just looks confused at this moment, like <laughs> trying to catch up. Fascinating. A result of stress. We've been under stress before. It's never set us at each other's throats. I dislike that. It, that even though Shatner's delivery at this moment is a bit over, uh, a little over the top, which is okay yeah. because it's Shatner and that's what he does. But it is Kirk, you know, coming to his senses, and this is this is what Kirk does. You know, this is what makes me, you know, love Kirk is that he's the one who just sort of guys, hang on a minute. Like, what are we doing to each other? We've been trained to fight in, in things, cases like this where we weren't at each other's throats. And Kirk is being the voice of reason, even to Spock, because sometimes it's the other way around. Yeah. But he's also you can tell he's fighting it like he's feeling the effects. He notices that he's feeling the effects of this because he says, look at me. And it is that over. Chatnery, but I love it. I think it's perfect for yeah, this. Yeah, for this because one, I agree. <laughs> he's being affected by an entity and he's noticing, he's saying, Look, I'm I'm hyping it all up. I'm he's he's sweaty, he's vehement. It's 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 a great moment because he's he's trying to use his mind and his own logic to talk himself out of where his emotions are being pushed to. Look at me. Look at me. He's really fighting the effects of the alien. You know, because he because he he's, you know, clenching his hands and he stops himself and he composes himself again. He says two forces aboard the ship, each of them equally armed. Has a war been staged for us, complete with weapons and ideology and patriotic drum beating, even spark, even race hatred. I mean, yeah, it's over the top, but I love it. I love it. And I love that he also says the phrase patriotic drum beating. Mm. Because again, talking about 2022, people who aren't paying attention to what's going on because they're whichever side you're on, patriotic drum beating. So I feel like, again, it's it's such a strong message that we all really need to listen to about being manipulated into fighting each other and thinking that we're fighting for something else that we're not really fighting for. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I I totally agree. And I also think, I mean, this is a moment where it's in looking at the people that he loves and respects and honors and watching their behavior that helps him to see that there's a problem. And my guess is both of you and probably everyone listening has had people in their family or friends or someone they went to high school with who you care about and you've watched them maybe on social media start to say some stuff where you go, I can't believe 
that this is what this person is now doing. Oh, I can't believe sure. that Scotty is like yelling at Spock. Like this is how it's become so divisive that we've seen transformations of people that we know are good people deep down. That is an and, excellent And again, way. both sides. That is an excellent way to make this episode even more relatable and more relevant in some ways today than it even was in 1968. Because when you see people you know and love, and they're saying things that you cannot believe that they would say, whether it's on social media or elsewhere, and you just go, what, what's happening to us? What's happening to us? This episode resonates on such a different level than it did for the last you know, 50 years that I've been watching Star Trek. Yeah. And, and I love the way that Kirk says, even, and he does that pause, but he goes, race hatred. Because yep. to him, that's ridiculous that nobody should have that. It's not a normal thing that somebody, ha it's, it's unthinkable to him that they would have race hatred. Apparently, it is by design that we fight. We seem to be pawns. But what's the game? And whose? And what are the rules? Sulu's in a Jeffrey's tube trying to fix the life support. And he says, I can't do it. I, the circuits aren't responding. And then just like that, the lights go on. <laughs> Power and life support restored. Remotes on standby. Good work. But Captain, I didn't do it. Everything just came on by itself. And they're having the same kind of conversation in engineering with the Klingons because they want it to be off. What power is it that supports our battling and starves our victory? Interrupted at their main life support couplings. Where? Number six deck. And she heads off with a guard. And of course, we see the alien again. Um, and then we see Chekhov climbing down a ladder. Just the way he's holding the sword. He's, he keeps wrapping his hand around the blade. It's mm. super weird. But yeah. it also, it's just another piece of this, wow, something's really wrong. The way he's not holding it with any care. And you, you would not hold your blade. It doesn't make any sense. I guess he's just looking for Klingons, but he is so far gone. Like mm. we see Scotty and we see Kirk and we see McCoy come in and out of the effects of the alien enemy. Like they come to their senses. Like even McCoy, you know, he's going to say soon, hey, if we're, if we're pawns, you're looking at one who's extremely sorry. But Chekhov is like way past the point of no return with this. We see Mara and her guard walk down the corridor. They pass Chekhov's position, and he attacks that guard from behind and takes him out and pushes Mara up against the wall. And this next scene, to me, has always been one of the most disturbing moments in the original series. And it is a disturbing moment that has, that has increased with time to seeing basically uh, an attempted rape scene on the enterprise. I had several thoughts about this. I couldn't agree more. It is horribly disturbing. What's interesting to me, and I think it's worth mentioning is this is the second attempted rape on the enterprise. That's right. And that I think that we can say if captain Kirk has that in him, that we see in the enemy within Chekhov has this in him. This isn't manufactured. It's magnified. It's brought out by false memories and all these other things, but it's also saying this is what humans do because historically and even to this day, rape is a weapon of war and it is something that tragically happens. And this is saying this and it doesn't it's not like the bad guys do that. It's this is used been used 
over and over and over again and it's horrible and the way this is filmed is really powerful he drops his sword he says you don't die yet the camera is very close to them you're not human but you're very beautiful very beautiful and if a chill doesn't go down your spine when you hear that line Ugh. And the way that the scene is shot with the close-up on Chekhov, and it's not a focused close-up. He's a little out of focus, yeah. and his most of his face is dark. So again, Marvin Chomsky is is really, you know, he's not just having the scenes, filming the scenes, let's keep going, let's keep going, let's keep going, although he was certainly doing that, but he certainly put effort into the effectiveness of some of these scenes, like I mentioned about the way that he shot Kang, and now with the way that he has shot the attentive rape of, of Mara by Chekhov. And so he rips her sh- her, her shirt. <gasps> and she's scared. I mean, Susan Howard oh, yeah. is is really good at this moment in terms of her effectiveness, showing how she's scared. But, but you know, when Laurie, when Steve and I were talking about The Enemy Within and we were talking about, hey, that was 1966 and we're seeing Captain Kirk basically try to rape Yeoman Rand. And now we're seeing in the third season Chekhov try to rape Mara. Like like what, like what, when you were young, when you were a kid watching Star Trek, like what did you think watching these moments? I mean, I knew even at that age that that's what he was going to try to do. I think it's more significant when I look at it now because there are two things. Like one, there's the context, which is in movies and TV shows, I feel like we're only now starting to realize maybe we shouldn't quickly fall back on rape as the next scary, dramatic thing to put in somewhere. Mm -hmm. And I think that for many decades, that's just been Mm -hmm. a fallback. And, And people don't, maybe the writers aren't always thinking those things through and how important that is and how that shouldn't be something that you just go to. But what's what I noticed now that's the most significant is that Mara knew immediately. Oh yeah. That that's what he was going to do before he started saying those things. She knew that was coming. She knew it was next. She first of all she already I'm sure thought that about humans anyway, but she saw it in his eyes and she knew. And yeah, that was more chilling to me. Yeah. than the way even the checkoff looks. Wow. You know, when we first meet Mara after she beams aboard the Enterprise, and she says, I heard about their atrocities, their death camps, they will torture us. And here we are seeing that happen. Yep. So it is a, it is even more chilling than I ever thought about. But wow, you're right. Absolutely. I think it's definitely in her performance. And, and I mean, I'm going to ask the question – is there any doubt in your mind of what happens if Kirk does not show up in the next moment? No, nope. I think he rapes oh, her. He rapes her. If Kirk hadn't showed up there with Spock and grabbed him by the shoulder, throwing him against the bulkhead and smacking him with both sides of the face, and then Spock stopping Kirk, who is now affected by the alien force. He's not responsible. And Kirk comes to a census again. We see this happen with our heroes again and again. And this time, what Kirk has done to Chekhov, he says, what have I done? It's so, this episode is so good. And then, and then the way Kirk goes to Mara 
And the way that Susan Howard, like she takes a step back, like, oh no, now he's going to try it. And the look on Kirk and the look, the, the way that Shatner plays this moment, he like, he doesn't know what to say. Like he knows that Chekhov just tried to rape her and Kirk is desperate to reach Kang. And she is the way that he is going to reach Kang. And he says, uh, like, he's like rambling, like, cause he, he's, he's desperate. He says, an alien entity aboard the ship. It's forcing us to fight. We don't want to. We don't know what its motive is. We're trying to find out. You must help us. Take me to Kang. A temporary truce. That's all I ask. And she says nothing because she is protecting her nobility, her, her code, and her husband. He actually comes towards her almost with, with his arms out, yeah. which is why she recoils. Yeah. And I don't think he realizes what he's doing in that case. And then I love that she remains silent. She doesn't talk to them at all for, for a while. Right. You're right. There's a, there's a theme we've discussed in uh, the third season, and that is a guest stars becoming central characters. And in many ways, the hero of the episode is that Jem had to have this transformation to become the hero at the end of the empath. Well, this episode is actually about Mara from this point forward. She is the linchpin when without her, we don't win. And she said, she has to be persuaded that this is really going on for all of us to survive. It's a hard sell for her. Like she doesn't, she, yeah. she doesn't buy it. Even when Kirk stops Chekhov from raping her, she doesn't go, Oh great. Okay. These guys are good. She's still not buying it. She's still waiting each step of the way for the next terrible thing to happen. There's still a lot that, that we have to go through in order for Mara to finally say, I will help you now. And Steve, you're absolutely right. From this point, after sort of being on the sidelines, after we first see her in Act One, when she beams aboard the Enterprise, from this point forward, it is Mara who initiates the actions that wind up saving both the Enterprise and the Klingons. And and Laurie, I, I've said this before during our third season, I might have been during For the World is Hollow, or might have been during Tholian Web, but the thing is that say what you want about Fred Freiberger that he wasn't the right person to, to, to produce the third season. He really didn't get Star Trek. And I do believe that is true. But at the same time, it was under Fred Freiberger's watch that you had more women writing screenplays and teleplays for Star Trek. You had Margaret Armin wrote another one. You had Joyce Muscat wrote The Empath. You had uh, Jean Lissetta Rest wrote both The uh, Paradise Syndrome and All Our Yesterdays. And you also had really strong female characters like the Romulan commander. I know we spoke about this elsewhere, Natira of Yanada. In some ways, uh, I mean, look, I think Miranda Jones is a flawed character, but she's a strong one. And now Mara, I mean, you know, first female Klingon, and she's protecting her code and her nobility and, and also, of course, her husband. But all this did happen under Freiberger's watch. So he does deserve credit for for doing that. And it was also under Freiberger's watch that you had this episode produced as well as uh, let that be your last battlefield over the top, but definitely a take on racism. And even an episode like the Mark of Gideon, which was like about overpopulation, all this was under Freiberger. So he does deserve some credit for, for what went right in the third season. Maybe. I mean, I could go into each of those and <laughs> you know, un uncheck some of your boxes, but uh, <laughs> but I would say in this, so as not to digress and get into too many other episodes. In this case, yes, 
<laughs> I mean, we'll have very, a conversation we, another time, Lauren. Yeah, I mean, we had Mara Romaine, we had a lot of stuff going up, but let's just say in this case, yes. <laughs> Mara Romaine, yes. <laughs> we're in we're in uh, sick bay, and uh, the first thing we hear is that Chekhov's brainwave shows almost paranoid mania. Um, After Kirk carries him in, cradling oh, yeah, we him should in comment. his arms, like I was, I want to know. I, you know, I know you guys had Walter on the show, but I want to know about Shatner carrying him around. I have so many questions. Well, well, that was a great moment. You know, they they're trying to to appeal to Mara. She's she's not budging. She's not saying a word. And Kirk just says, "Take her." And then he goes back to Chekhov. He's like Chekhov, and he picks him up. I mean, it's such a it's such a tender moment. Like, of, I mean, first of all, he feels so much remorse because he hit the guy. Is this what's in store for us? From here on in, violence, hatred. And look, those words are not limited to this episode. They were applying to 1968, and they are applying to 2022. Johnson's heart wound is almost completely healed. The same with the other casualties. Sword wounds in the vital organs. Massive trauma, shock. They're all healing at a fantastic rate. It would appear that the entity wants us alive. Why? So we can fight? And fight and keep coming back for more like some bloody coliseum? What's next? The roar of crowds? Which I think, again, is so significant when I think about that, that there's a spectacle of it and that there's always someone else benefiting. You know, it's the divide and conquer. There's always someone else benefiting from other people's conflict. Mm. Mm, absolutely. Yep. Another thing that's happening at sickbay is Johnson has woken up and is listening to this. And he's smiling. And then we hear, and this is Scott, you brought this up before, but McCoy redeems himself and says, Gentlemen, if we are pawns, you're looking at one who is extremely sorry. And then I love Spock's response. I understand, Doctor. I, too, felt a brief surge of racial bigotry. And then there's a pause. Most distasteful. And they head off to find the alien, and we're in the corridor. And again, we're just bringing Mara with us. I, I love the way the scene is, is done. They're walking down the corridor with urgency, and Kirk sees it first, and he just stops in his tracks. The music cue that is played every time we see the alien entity, you know that music cue. And you see the alien entity is aware now that the three of them see it, and it goes up into the corner, and it's just hanging there, just waiting it's it's a chilling moment because of the way that Kirk just like stops in his tracks. So he's been talking about it. You know, they've been, you know, Spock came to the conclusion that there is another alien life force aboard the ship. And there it is. This is the reason why this is happening. What did you want? What are you doing here? And then the camera just pans a little to the left and Johnson is standing there looking red and not just because of his red shirt. Reporting for duty, sir. McCoy, I release you from sickbay? I release myself. Then get back to sickbay. Mount your life, sir. I'm fit and ready for action. I order you to get I back. got my orders. I'm obeying orders. Kill the Cleons. It's never us, isn't it? Johnson! And Johnson goes to use a sword against the captain, and Spock st- saves him with the FSNP, the famous Spock neck pinch. It's funny. It's very similar to the scene with Chekhov on the bridge where he wants to go after the Klingons and Kirk is trying to stop him. But in in a weird way, this is even scarier. Johnson becomes to me sort of the, uh, the, the epitome of the mindless soldier. Like I'm just going to go fight and kill. 
It's very scary. But the other thing that Spock picks up on is that during the emotional outburst, the energy of the creature goes up. So this is, and this is something we've seen a bunch of times in Star Trek, which is we can track the energy by what our emotions are in some alien. And it has acted as a catalyst, creating the situation. In order to satisfy that need, it has brought together opposing forces, provided crude instruments in an effort to promote the most violent mode of conflict. I think there's a moment here too where Mara is, she's taking it in. Like she's looking at, she doesn't trust them yet, but she's clocking and storing all of the information. You're right. You're right. Because I mean, she's, look, she has a long way to go before she can even begin to just even slightly kind of trust Kirk and Spock and whatever, the Federation. But she's, you're right. She's still not said anything, but she's not exactly fighting them either. She's a science officer. Oh, great so she, point. You know, she is taking in the information. She's got her own thoughts. She doesn't believe them. She's not sure if this is a show for her mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. convince her or if it's real, but she's definitely adding up the details in her mind. And I feel like you can see that happening. I, I feel like that's how she was playing it. Yep, I, I agree. I think that's true. Well, and we don't know how much she's being affected by the alien. You know, she probably has her own emotions that she's going to have to overcome. Um, and what we do is we finally come up with the beginnings of the plan. We've got to get rid of it. Then all hostile attitudes on board must be eliminated. The fighting must end. And soon, or we're a doomed ship. And at this moment, Kirk takes Mara and Spock over to the nearest like, communicator on the wall, and he tries to reach Kang. And I love the shot when we cut to Kang in engineering. And he is standing there triumphantly, leaning his sword on the control panel in engineering. That's such a great shot. Kang, this is Captain Kirk. Kang, you're in me. And he hears Kirk. Kang hears him. But then Mara runs to the wall. Commander, it's a trick! And Kirk covers her mouth. Like, for a moment, he was maybe open, open to listening to Kirk. But as soon as Mara went to the wall and screamed into the communicator, it's a trick. He went, nope. It's so funny because I've seen this episode, obviously, millions of times since I was a kid. And when I was taking notes as I was watching this time, I wrote, damn it, Mara. (laughs) (laughs) But the thing is, how many times has Kirk been captured and run to the communicator to say, no, it's a trick in some way or another? Yep. I mean, that is a clad, whether it's bread and circuses or what, you know, taste of Armageddon, or there's all these times where that it's a very similar situation of Kirk trying to get that message out. She's doing exactly what Kirk would have done. Scotty, sir, the ship's dilithium crystals are deteriorating. We can't stop the process. Time, Packer. In 12 minutes, we'll be totally without engine power. So this is another great thing about Star Trek. Steve, you and I pointed out on, on the very best episodes where the problems keep mounting. And the tension keeps rising. And now, now, in addition to heading out of the galaxy, now we have a ticking clock because the dilithium crystals are deteriorating and we have 12 minutes until no engine power. And as if Kirk didn't have enough to worry about, you could see Kirk just kind of shrug. He goes, all right, well, you know, do what you can, Kirk out. And he just like looks down and he looks back at the alien entity. And I just love the alien entity is sort of like heard all it needed to hear. And you see it move away from the top of the ceiling, down the corridor, and 
through the wall. So we drift in space with only hatred and bloodshed aboard. And he says to Mara, Now do you believe? It's a great moment. It's such a great moment because he's spelling it out in case anyone in the audience missed it. (laughs) Right? Like he's, but you have to, I mean, it's TV, you have to do that. So he's lining it all up. And yet it's such a natural, it feels like such a natural thing for him to say. I totally agree. They've added a ticking clock. That's clear what they did. This one doesn't quite work for me because it doesn't quite track right in my head. It's like, wait, wait, what's going on in 12 (laughs) minutes and but we're going at warp nine and now we're, it just, I, I don't, I feel, it feels tacked on to me. I think everything else is working for me really well, but the ticking clock is less so for me. Um, that is the end of act three. And I now have a crazy theory to lay out. Okay. Which is, hear it. <laughs> and maybe, maybe you'll think I'm taking this too far, but I actually don't think I, I am. So here we have, again, this is the science fiction idea. We have a creature that feeds on, hate and anger and violence. And so it is creating circumstances to increase hate and anger and violence so it can grow more powerful. And I believe that this is something, and Laura, you touched on this before, this is going on exactly in our world. With traditional media, there's the expression, if it bleeds, it leads. And what that means is that the more violent, the more scary, the more we can make you angry, the more you will tune in. And so those corporations are literally making money off of creating anger and fear. And that's not nearly as bad as social media because the way social media algorithms work is they know when you're scrolling, they know when you're stopping, they know what link you're clicking on, they know what video you're watching. And over and over and over again, social media has learned because they make money by the longer you stay on Facebook or YouTube or Twitter, that's how they make their money. And they know the more extreme things you see, the longer you stay there. And so they are continually showing us more and more extreme things to make us angrier and more fearful. And that is what they live on. They are the creature that we are dealing with. It is not, it is real. That is in our world. That is how we get our knowledge from something that feeds on our hate and anger. And the more polarized we are, the less likely we are to look at that and notice it. We are not going to pay attention to what is creating this or, 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 you know, bolstering it. We are too busy looking at each other, pointing fingers and hating each other. And in the meantime, you know, in this case, it's an entity that's growing stronger. But in our case, it's, I mean, honestly, it's, it's, corporations and companies that absolutely are benefiting economically from all of us being at war with each other. And, and, and if we've seen anything, uh, over the last few years, boy, uh, certainly over the last maybe six years is that the more we feed into that, the more that the entity symbolically that you've laid out feeds off of us, the more the division will increase and the further and further away we will get from from working together and resolving all this and putting our hate and our bigotry and our differences aside to to be one. But it's not gotten better. It's gotten worse. And the entity has gotten stronger and redder over these years. 
Well, and the thing is, is that it is wow. not natural for us to question our worldview. So the Klingons have been told that the Federation has death camps and does experimentation. Well, if they get presented with more information that reinforces that worldview, they go, well, that must be true. And that's what we all do all the time. Whatever your bias, it's being fed and we don't question like, oh, maybe some of the stuff I'm getting fed is not actually correct or has been slanted. And again, that's how you get. And I'm talking about people on my side of the political fence that I see them say and do things like that make me feel like how I feel about Scotty when he comes on the bridge where it's like, Oh my God, why, you know, that's too far. That's too scary. That's too angry. That's too violent. And it's really, really scary. And there's a bunch of people making a lot of money and getting a lot of power out of making us feel this way all the time. And yep. that, and that is, that is the entity, the it's alien the energy. Yeah. The alien entity. Mm-hmm. And politicians are doing the same thing because yep. we've got more extreme viewpoints of people who have not thought things through or researched things. They're just saying whatever they think will get headlines. I mean, headlines are a curse right now, frankly. Headlines <laughs> and voters. And they don't care if there's anything to back it up. It's still just let's keep fighting, 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 because if I hate you, then my supporters are going to support me. Mm. Well, and when you hear them talk about the base, whether it's whichever base it is, the more extreme things are what get the base to come out and vote. And so politicians keep feeding the fire like the entities do, because that's how they get reelected or elected the first time. All right. Off act, the to act four. Back <laughs> in Act Four. <laughs> I love that Kirk, by the way, says in his log, Stardate. Armageddon. Armageddon. <laughs> Very dramatic. <laughs> it's Kirk. He's dramatic. Yes, he has to say it. And just coming off this conversation when we when we closed out Act Three, there's that line. We must find a way to defeat the alien force of hate that has taken over the Enterprise. Stop the war now, or spend eternity in futile, bloody violence. When William Shatner was reading this this teleplay. While they were filming for The World is Hollow and I Have Touched the Sky, Bob Justman sent a memo to Fred Freiberger, and he said, I just got a call from William Shatner. There, He's over in Culver City filming uh, the uh, subterranean uh, chamber mm-hmm. for, uh, for The World is Hollow, and he said that how much he loved the teleplay for Day of the Dove and and this is exactly the kind of episodes that we should be doing. And it was because of this line, stop the war now or spend eternity in futile bloody violence, because this was a direct take on Vietnam. And after this portion of the conversation that we just had a few moments ago, this is absolutely applies. And we find out we have nine minutes and 50 se- seconds left. This is really not a lot of time. And they're trying to figure out how to get to Kang. And we hear Kang's wife is, after all, our prisoner. Perhaps a threat. Aye, now that's something the Klingons would understand. <laughs> that's right back to the racism, you know? Yep. And I don't, I understand exactly why they do this, which is that Kirk is going to threaten the Mara, and then Mara is going to find out that that was a bluff, and that's what persuades her. And I understand that's what they do. I really don't like Kirk threatening Mara at this moment. Mm-hmm. I, I, I just don't like it. I don't like that it was Spock's suggestion. But I don't think that I don't think that they were really going to hurt her. I think no, I don't think were, so either. Yeah, 
I think but, they're just trying to reach Kang. And well, what if we what if we threaten what if we threaten Mara and maybe he'll listen? But I don't think that they were ever going to actually I, do it. I, no, I no, of course they weren't going to hurt her. But I think a threat on someone's wife is an escalation. Like it's exact it's exactly working against what you need. You know what right. I mean? Like it That's just true. doesn't yeah, it doesn't track right for me. Um, but that's what happens is that he threatens her and he says, We have Mara, your wife. We talk truce now or she dies. Reply. She has five seconds to live. And she goes, she motions like she's going to say something again. And he just saw her, you know, blow it before when she screamed into the communicator. So he stops her and says, uh, Reply again. And there's a beat, and he says, She is a victim of war, Captain. She understands. That is a, tr- again, we're talking about establishing what the Klingons are and what we're going to see later on when we get to Next Generation. Is not only is he, he's saying something about honor to her as yep. a warrior, mm-hmm. is that she is a warrior, she understands. It's not that he doesn't love his wife, it's not that he doesn't see this as a tragedy, it's what this culture is. It's the and way of the warrior. In, and I think in other circumstances, she would have died. So of course, Mara would have died for honor to, you know, support the Klingon empire in whatever way she needed to. And Kirk goes, damn, he called my bluff. And this is the moment that Mara needed to see or hear those words. He called my bluff after everything she saw with her own eyes. This is what she needed to realize that they are telling the truth. This is the first time she speaks to them. Yeah, that's right. You're not going. The Federation doesn't kill or mistreat its prisoners. You've been listening to propaganda fables. How much time? Eight minutes, 42 seconds. See, I think this works, Steve. I know you don't, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm into like, okay, this is it. No more messing around. We got it. We got to fix the problem. Eight minutes and 40 seconds or we're in. Deep, I'm, deep well, and I'm glad, I, I, and, and maybe I'm crazy that it doesn't work. I'm th- of course, it's great that it works for you. It's always better. I always th- think it's funny when people try to convince other people that things they like, they shouldn't like, because you're kind of robbing them of, it's great that it works for you. That's awesome. There's a very interesting conversation they have here when she realizes that they weren't going to do anything to her. So this was no trick. It's the alien that's done this. We're in its power, our people and yours. Like Scotty has come around, he's realized yep. what's going on. And then she tells them a little bit about Klingons. We have always fought. We must. We are hunters, Captain. She calls him Captain. Yep. So she's now got some respect for him. Tracking and taking what we need. Poor planets in the Klingon systems. We must push outward if we are to survive. In other words, they have motivations like the Gorn had motivations for doing what they're doing. We might not like what they're doing, but it's not just that they're evil. But then she says, this is the turning point. She says, I will help you now. How? I will take you to Kang. I will add my voice to yours. The problem is, is how are we going to get through Kang's defenses in such a short period of time? And then we come up with intra-ship beaming where they talk about, oh, it's really dangerous and we don't do it because of pinpoint accuracy. And I'm like, we've beamed places... You know, we beamed onto the the Sirius, you know, where which was really tiny. He knew exactly where the bulkhead was. <laughs> this doesn't really track for me. Agreed. I I think they needed a reason that they didn't just beam all those trapped trapped crewmen out. <laughs> so, oh my god! You know? Great point. And should um, they have to sit right then and there? 
you know, hey, Scotty, while I'm doing this, <laughs> get those <laughs> yeah. for sound of That's a great, that's a great point, Lori. <laughs> you just totally blew my mind. Wow. I, I also have no idea why they're going to run the transporter room from the bridge. Why don't they just go to the transporter room? It doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. None of <laughs> the... and, Mar go to the and there's always room. like, sometimes they have to have someone at the controls in this case, they didn't cause they could do it from the bridge, but there were other times they had to have someone there. So, I mean, there's a lot of convenience in the original series. <laughs> um, but we're at 50 the... minutes. Yeah. Can we back up for one second? Because there's a line of Spocks that stuck with me my entire life. So what I is have that? to bring it up, which is when Scotty is saying that but she can't guarantee that Kang will stop to listen. Right, Mr. Spock? No one can guarantee the actions of another. Now, why does that line stick out for you for all these That years? every time from the time I was a kid till now when I'm dealing with somebody and I want to say this person's going to do something or if you do this, I'll do something. I remember no one can guarantee the actions of another and it tempers my plan or my advice with the understanding that the thing you think is going to happen isn't necessarily going to happen you are so right 100 percent. we're at the transporter room we hear that it's gonna as soon as you hit energize you got eight seconds uh kirk goes hits energizes the transporter walks to the pad realizes he has the sword walks back puts his sword down then walks back to the pad taking way more than eight seconds to do it but I like the moment, which is he decides I don't want to materialize armed. I agree. We're not going to kill today. You're alive. You bring a surprise. Kang, wait. He's come alone, unarmed. He must talk to you. And Kang is ready to fight um, and goes to attack. And the alien is there. And Mara is pleading with him to listen to Kirk. What I like is that Kang doesn't understand what's happened to Mara. Why is she t suddenly taking Kirk's side? King, don't! What have they done to you, Mara? What have you mind? What have they done to you? In that moment, he sees the torn clothing. I see why the human beast did not kill you. So he thinks that Kirk ripped her uniform. No, he doesn't just think that Kirk ripped her uniform. Yeah. He thinks that Kirk raped her. Yeah. He thinks that Kirk raped her. Right, yes. I think that is also a chilling moment. Mm -hmm. And the fact that kang overcomes i mean all of our people have to overcome their violent intentions the fact that kang has that in his head and is capable of overcoming his violent intentions in the end is a pretty amazing thing they didn't harm me listen to it pushes her away and what does mara do she tosses kirk a sword and here we go <laughs> and there's a little bit of fighting Death. We win. Nobody wins. Have any more of your men died? We can't be killed. I do like Kang's line, which is a good question. But no doubt you will reassemble after I have hacked you to bits. <laughs> Would Kirk have reassembled if he had been hacked to bits? Maybe. Yep. I mean, look, look, Johnson was, was healing fast after being stabbed in the heart. Or maybe the, the alien will just allow one person to come up from down below. To keep the numbers even oh, again. Yeah, possibly. Sure. And at that moment, we, we see the we see the cavalry is coming, you know, Spock and McCoy in some red shirts with their swords. And Which it, I go, why? Yeah, I had the same reaction. He said, don't come because he'll think that we're coming to fight. And then they show up. 
Uh, we have to stop okay. all hostility. This just added to hostilities. They should have stayed in the bridge. Yeah, he told them not to come, but he needed them for the final scene. Well, and I think, and I think we maybe the network said, "Hey, can we have a little more fighting? Yeah. We like fighting." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Can you hack at each other's swords again? <laughs> As they're fighting, the light gets redder and redder. I don't, I wonder why the alien doesn't just hide, <laughs> like it's yeah. hovering right there, so all of them can see it. Look, gang, for the rest of our lives. A thousand lifetimes, senseless violence, fighting, while an alien has total control over us. And Kirk throws his sword away. I, as a writer, I dislike what I believe are accidental rhymes. Accidental rhymes tend to be bad writing. All right. In the heart, in the head, I won't stay dead. Uh Oh, right. But, you know, at this moment... It reminded me of that moment in The Empath when Kirk says to the Vians, if death is all you understand, here are four lies for you. He shifts his strategy to try and be like, okay, here, fine, kill us. If that's what you want, go ahead. And then they go, oh, wait a minute. So now Kirk is pulling the same tactic with Kang. And he's saying, all right, fine, go ahead. In the heart and the head, I won't stay dead. It'll it'll be the good old game of war, pawn against pawn, stopping the bad guys while somewhere something sits back and laughs. It starts it all over again. Kang is listening, and Mara is off to the side to Kang. I am your wife. I'm a Klingon. I lie for them. Listen to Kirk. He is telling the truth. And I just love how you just see the wheels turning in Michael and Sarah's performance here. He's looking. He can see this alien entity. His wife, his wife is saying, would I lie for them? Like, that's not the word. It's not that she's saying, He speaks the truth. She is appealing to him as a commander. She is appealing to him as her husband. She is appealing to him as a Klingon. And she is saying, would I lie for them? And that is what makes Kang stop and drop his sword. It's that combo of Mara and what you described of what Kirk does. And I think that the, the relation to the empath is a great example. And it's, it's funny as it, I think I might've mentioned in our last episode that right now in my other podcast, I'm working on Gandhi and uh, the Richard Attenborough 1982 film. And it's interesting having Gandhi come right at the moment that we're doing day of the dove, because what Gandhi did, his ideas were essentially to weaponize vulnerability. He knew that fighting would only get more fighting, that an eye for an eye leads the whole world blind, as he said. And what he does is take, you have to hit me. He he opens himself to be hurt. And that's exactly what Kirk does. It's Kirk throwing away the sword. There's no way you can fi- convince Kang not to fight with the sword. The only way to convince him not to fight is to open himself up and say, you can kill me. Wow. Guns kill for their own purposes. All fighting must end, Captain, to weaken the alien before our dilithium crystals are gone. We get on the intercom, and first Kirk says, This is Captain Kirk. A truce is ordered. The fighting is over. It's hard to lay down your weapon when a dude is swinging a sword at you, so the Enterprise crew isn't quite ready to lay down their weapons, and then Kang comes up. This is Kang. Cease hostilities. Disarm. Here's my question. Does Kang look disappointed? Does Kang sound disappointed? Yeah, I think that's yeah. there. Yeah, definitely. What, why do you say that, Laurie? I think you can see it in his face that he 
that's not a command he likes to give. It's not, you know, he doesn't, they, he thought they were winning. Yeah. And so now he has to tell everybody sees, and especially they're winning. If he thinks that maybe some of the, of the enterprise crew has in fact laid down their arms because he can't see what's going on out there. And so now they really have the upper hand because Kirk just told his people not to fight. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I also think frankly, that convincing a bunch of people that I can only imagine are feeling like Johnson to lay down their arms in the midst of a fight just because you told them to, I don't believe this. What I wish had happened is that Kang and Kirk both do what Kirk did, which is walk between the fighters unarmed. Oh. I wish there was a a visual way to stop them rather than just because Johnson's not going to stop fighting just because Kirk says stop fighting. That's not going to happen. I think one of the things that this episode suffers from at this point is the same thing that the last episode for The World is Hollow suffers from, is that we got to wrap this up. Yeah. So so the end of Act Four, it's like you could just feel it rushed that we got to like wrap this baby up so we can come in on time and uh, in terms of our running time for the episode, 50 minutes. And all of this last stuff here feels a little contrived, a little, a little wonky and a little rushed, but uh, that would have been a hell of a scene, Steve. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is a, it's definitely a shortcut and it doesn't work except for the authority in Kang's voice. Yeah. No, I think they, they do a good job with it. Yeah. Cessation of violence appears to have weakened it, Captain. I suggest that good spirits might make an effective weapon. And I, I love that Kirk uh, walks to the middle of engineering, looks up at the alien entity and says, Get off my ship. You're a dead duck here. You're powerless. We know about you. And we don't want to play. It's such a great moment. And then Kang just joins in and says just like a such a quotable iconic line from star trek out we need no urging to hate humans for the present only a fool fights in a burning house only a fool fights in a burning house there's so much great dialogue it says also you know we we have no urging to hate humans it's so good it's so good that was a loaded line. We need no <laughs> urging to hate humans. I'm like, yeah. oh, okay, which side are you on again? So, <laughs> you know, there's well, that moment. And and the moment which we're going to end with, they all start laughing at the entity, which is weakening. And then in the midst of his laughter, Kang gives Kirk a big slap on the back. And I love Kirk's look over of like, why I ought to <laughs> yeah, yeah. keep laughing. It's great. And it looks it's like big, it hurt. Like it, it pushes him forward. It's great. We used to do it oh, as kids. We used to imitate that slap all the time. Well, that that slap looks like it hurt. Yep. And the reason for that is because during the filming of this episode, Barbara Eden came to the set and Shatner was being a little flirty with Barbara Eden, oh. who's married to Michael and Sarah. And Michael and Sarah is seeing William Shatner, you know, being the Lothario, flirting with his wife. So this was his way to, like, you know, make it hurt. So he slapped him in the back really hard. And that is when we see the alien leave the Enterprise, but not, not die, not disintegrate, not dissipate. It's just out there. Yeah. We don't find out what happens to it. We don't find out anything about it. And because the episode ends there, we also don't find out, you know, how things went afterwards when they had to get the Klingons back to wherever they were going to take them. Like well, there's a lot of missing follow-up there. I'm glad you brought that up, Laurie, is because 
there was going to be follow-up with like, what do we do with the Klingons now? Because in the teleplay for this episode, there was a scene, a final tag scene that takes place on the bridge, but it was not filmed because the episode was already running over in terms of like timing to like make it 40, 49 minutes without the ending credits. So in a cut tag scene, Kang and Mara are on the bridge and Sulu sets a course for a neutral planet where the Klingons could be dropped off. And at this point, Kang asks Kirk why he reveres peace when there's, quote, a galaxy to be taken with its riches. And after some back and forth, Kirk finally says to Kang, cooperate or fight uselessly for all eternity. A universal rule you Klingons had better learn because we did. And that is how Day of the Dove was written to end. Hmm. Now, Scott, I had read this and I feel like you would know if if I read this in a rep. I can't remember where I read it, but that early on the script also had a peace march at the end with singing. I have it in my notes right here, Laurie. <laughs> <laughs> and early versions of the outline the episode ended with a peace march not only a peace march laurie but also uh the, and the peace march is what robbed the alien aliens at that at the point of the writing of the outlines of their power but uhura also sang a peace anthem oh but when fred freiberger went through and he did his revised outline after Jerome Bixby did like, you know, four versions of an outline. Freiberger went through with, with the budget in mind. And, and instead of making the, the Dorn race humanoids, uh, he said, let's just make it one energy force. And, you know, then we don't have to pay all these extras, but, (laughs) but regardless, yes, you're right. There was supposed to be a peace March and there was supposed to be a peace Anthem. Uh, And Freiberger said, you know, we don't need that. The episode is making its point without going, way too over the top with a peace march and a, and a peace anthem. Good call. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, it would talk about being pre- one is like, let's stimulate a bunch of ideas and make you think. And the other is preaching and saying, this is what you should think. So that brings us to the end of act four of day of the dove. And right now let's get right into our exclusive interview with Susan Howard. Enjoy. And joining us right now on enterprise incidents, we are so excited to be joined by Susan Howard, who played Mara on Day of the Dove. Susan Howard, welcome aboard Enterprise oh, Incidents, and thank you, you for joining thank us. Thank you. A hundred years ago, guys. <laughs> well, it feels like just yesterday for us, because <laughs> Susan, Susan, what's really, truly amazing, have you been able to wrap your head around the, the fact that you are the very first woman to ever play a Klingon on Star Trek. It took a long time because, first of all, let me tell you guys, I was a contract player under contract to Screen Gems Columbia, and Millie Gussie, who was the head of casting there, she had brought me under contract. She left, and she went to Paramount. And Millie was a, a fan of mine. I adored her. She was a wonderful lady. And uh, she she really helped my career. Anyway, she must have called over to Screen Gems and said, I want Susan Howard uh, to come over here to Paramount because we're doing this uh, series called Star Trek, and uh, I want her to play this this girl in it. 
I had no idea. I didn't. I had no idea. Had no idea what it was. Had never heard of it. Didn't know anything about it. But I thought you don't really have a choice if you're a contract player. Uh, sometimes you do. Anyway, um, I said, sure, great. I mean, I love Paramount. You know, it's a great studio. So I went over to Paramount and uh, got the script, and I read it, and I thought, well, this is interesting. This is really neat. So, in fact, I did. I liked the script. I thought I liked what it said. It was, uh, I don't know, it was very positive. It was uplifting. It was hopeful. And I went. They said, okay, now you've got to go to the makeup and wardrobe. And I said, great, okay, let's go. So I went. <laughs> Little did I know they were going to tint my hair brown, okay? <laughs> and they tinted it brown. And then they said, and we're going to try this makeup on you. It was half brown and half black and half green. And they put this all over you. And I thought, well, now that is really interesting. Then they made this awesome costume with these boots that went all the way up my leg. I thought, this is really fun. This is, but I didn't. I knew, I didn't, I didn't have a clue. Didn't have a clue what it was, what it was about or anything. And over the years, obviously, it's been something that I get, I get fan mail at least uh, four or five times a week, letters from people who wow. uh, loved the show, loved my character. And I think as much as anything, what a lot of them have said is, you weren't weird looking. And I thought, uh, did you see the show? Right? <laughs> 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 anyway, and that's, that was, you know, my thinking about it. And it's, it's been a real honor, quite honestly, to uh, have, have been in one of those that I guess will go down in history, if you will, as being one of those kind of cult shows that people remember. And um, I think one of the most interesting things for me was I was in Washington, D.C. quite a few years ago with my mom, and I was showing her around, and I said, we're going to go to the Air and Space Museum because I want you to see it's fabulous. So we, we go in to the Air and Space Museum, and I, my mother goes one way and I go the other, and all of a sudden I hear my mother go, oh! And I went, oh, my Lord, what happened? And I run into the next room, and she says, it's you! And I went, what? She says, it's you, and she pointed. Guys, they had done an exhibit of Star Trek, and it was Day of the Dove, which gave, gives me cold chills. There I was. It was me in my costume and everything. And I thought, well, some people live a lifetime and never get in the National Archives. And here I am because wow, that of is Star amazing. Trek. It was so cool. I mean, and everybody <laughs> yeah. turns around and goes, what, what? And my mother's going, that's her. That's my daughter. <laughs> That was neat. It was. It was cool. That's so incredible. I mean, because I assume that it just was felt like it was another job, like a lot of different jobs. I'm sure you went. Well, you know, you didn't consider it anything because you didn't know. You just, like you said, it's another uh, TV series. You know. So when I and at Screen Gems, mainly all we did were, you know, Flying Nun and Bewitched, and you know, Here Come the Brides, and you know that kind of thing. So I had no idea about uh, science fiction-y stuff. So I love it. <laughs> so, so, so the question I have for you, Susan, is when, when you were all made up and, you know, with the hair and the makeup and the right. costume and the boots and the wardrobe, and you looked at yourself in the mirror, uh-huh. like, what did you think when you saw yourself made up as Mar the Klingon? I thought I was Mar the Klingon. I thought this is good. 
because I love character <laughs> stuff anyway. And I thought, oh, this is really good, because I honestly thought it was very imaginative and creative what they did. And I guess through some of the letters that I've had over the years, they they really liked the way that our makeup was done, that we weren't bizarre, weird, strange-looking. We'd have things growing out of the sides of our head or, you know, they didn't try to make us uh, unattractive. In fact, I, they, the guys, and well, and Michael, myself, and the other, we, we kind of looked normal, <laughs> sort of, <laughs> as right. normal as you could be. Right? <laughs> what was it like since you, you didn't know the show, and what was it like walking onto that set? I mean, that's had to be a pretty different set from other shows that you had worked on. Well, honestly, I didn't, I, I just assumed that, you know, this was another show, and this is what you do. And and I remember them saying, now, one of the things when you when you materialize it, when you come out of here, this is what you do. You kind of have to, you know, pretend like you're you, you you're all of a sudden <laughs> you've you've materialized. You here, so you kind of move a little bit. I went, okay, I can do that. <laughs> 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 but it was fun because it was just you know a big old set with all the accoutrements that they had for the, the uh, Enterprise. And everybody set up there, Yahura and all of them. And they were very nice people, all of them. None of them were not friendly. or It, it was a, seemed to be a very combat, a compatible set and very uh, confined. I mean, it wasn't a big, huge set. You didn't have all of these different sets and, and, and hallways. And this. pretty much we stayed in basically the same area. But I, well, it was it was very uh, interesting in the sense that you take a lot of those things in as an actor, and you're trying to establish what it is you're supposed to do, how it is you're supposed to act and react, what is your job there, what is it, what kind of character are you supposed to be? And I kept thinking she is supposed to be, because her husband's a big dude, she is supposed to be uh, his his co-equal. But she's not one that is aggressively out front. And I tried to play it that way. So I think well, I did. Well, well, listen, you brought up Michael. That would be Michael and Sarah. Who played I love Kang. Michael and Sarah. Yes. Wonderful. Let's, let's talk about Michael. I mean, because even though Michael and Sarah was not the first uh, actor to play a Klingon on Star Trek, uh, that would have been John Colicos in the very first season, Everend of Mercy. Mm. But Susan... Susan, watching Day of the Dove, watching Michael and Sarah's performance as Kang, like the the whole template for the Klingons moving forward for all the other Star Trek shows and movies to follow were basically set by Michael. Michael raised I agree. the bar. I totally so, agree. But so, that's so because what was he, it like working with him? Well, um, he's a professional, okay? And uh, you knew that. I had worked with Michael before at Screen Gym, on Here Come the Brides, because uh, he, he and I had done one of the Here Come the Brides together, and he was a, an Indian who kidnapped us anyway. But Michael is, was a professional. He was a, a, an actor who, uh, I think as much as anything as I was saying, enjoyed the character, enjoyed bringing something to it, and enjoyed the fact that maybe he was doing something that maybe you know somebody would take notice of. He was a really lovely, lovely man. One of the things that I, I noted, we noticed in watching the episode is that for the last third, it's really about you observing, your character observing what's going on and deciding Absolutely. whether or not 
So what was that like? What choices did you make as an well, actor? Well, that's what I was telling you in the out? beginning. I think Mara, Mara was one who she observed. She stood not back, but she did, and, and looked and took things in to try to discern what it was, what was going on, uh, not only with her but with Kang and with the Enterprise itself, with Kirk, with the rest of the crew. She was trying to understand what was happening, and it was uh, confusing, quite obviously, but at the same time, she understood that there had to be a reason for what was happening. And it wasn't obvious. It it had to be worked through. Okay, I, I think she was a very intelligent woman. Okay. <laughs> so so during our conversation about Day of the Dove, we you know talked about how Mara was was observing Kirk and Spock right. and observing Kang right. until yep. in, until she was sure that Kirk and Spock were telling the truth. That's right. So my my question is. You know, you talked about working with Michael and Sarah. Right. Uh, what was it like working with William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy? Well, again, you're talking professionals, okay? Because the majority, I, the majority of people that I ended up working with in most of my career, other than later on, were professional. They came out of the theater, okay? So there was a sense of uh, respect, if you will, for not only who you are, but who the other person is and who you're relating to. And that was kind of it. You played the characters. You, you, you didn't try to assume something else. You actually did what the script said. And that's what they did. And that's what we all did. And, and you treated it as such, which was really good because that's, that's called acting. Um, you you had to do some what i think were some pretty scary scenes particularly the scenes with uh, the one with the russian yes (laughs) yeah but so i was wondering as an actor how did you how do you approach scenes like that well you uh (laughs) you just prepare yourself for it and you try to understand what what a person would do in a situation like that and you you let it happen. You first, one of the main things is always to pay attention to the other actor. What is his role? What is he going to do? How is he going to present himself? What kind of emotions are he, is he coming forth with that will give you something to respond? Because acting is reacting. That's basically it. So you, 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 you really, in the rehearsals, I do, you spend your time trying to focus on how he speaks, how he moves, and what his aggressive attitudes are. So that's what you do. I mean, it's a, it's a powerful scene. And uh, do you, it is. Do you remember I agree. Rehearsing? Do you remember yes. rehearsing with Walter yes. Koenig on just like, how to get it just right? I do. Yeah. And I remember when the, the top was torn, you know, and making sure that, that it worked the right way. Yeah, I remember all of that. Yeah. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yep. Yep. So what I'm curious about, so you do this job, and it's a gig like a lot of other gigs I'm sure you did, and then, you know, no one could have anticipated that now, you know, 55 years later, we're still right. talking about this show. I was wondering, was there was there a moment where you first realized that something special was happening, that people continued to talk about that episode and your performance? Uh, throughout the years, okay? 
I mean, I would go to, to different places, uh, even when I was doing like Petrocelli, and they would say, oh, you, or I would be in Washington, or I'd be someplace else, I'd be, and they'd go, you were more, I loved, I loved Day of the Dove, and I'd go, wow, and I'd, I had different things that I would sign and give to them, but it was, the, the, the audience built this, guys. Okay, the show itself, yep. the script itself was excellent, but I say the same thing about Dallas. If it had not been uh, England, London specifically, uh, Dallas would have never happened, okay? The same mm-hmm. thing with Star Trek, and it's a shame that it was canceled, but the public, and unfortunately, I guess, right, they did not pay enough attention to the attitudes that the people had in regards to the show. Uh, how much they liked it, and that's why they ended up obviously bringing it back. But it was not the same show as it was. So, uh, right, we we agree with that. I, I, yeah. I'm just curious. Uh, you know, you you were your episode was directed by Marvin Chomsky. The yes. show at that time was was Fred Freiberger. Do, do you have any Fred any memories Freiberger about working was wonderful. with Wonderful, Fred Freiberger. Oh my gosh, these are wonderful names, wonderful people, talented. Talented, knowledgeable, under you know, uh, great respect for their gifts and their talent. Yep, yep. Do you mm-hmm. do you have uh, any fond memories? Any memories that you cherish for about the making of Day of the Dove? Well, I, I think as much as anything, it was really when I went to the hair and makeup and wardrobe. I I had never been in anything like that before. I'd done a Mission Impossible where they put one of those death masks on your face, you know, Mm. and I nearly choked to death. I thought I was going to die, and they put the straws up your nose, you know, and you have to breathe. I'm going, and I think I looked like I was dying when they took it off. But that was the most weird thing I ever did. But this was fun. This was like when you went to college and you got wardrobe and hair and makeup and that's what it was about. I, I have great fond memories. The wardrobe people were wonderful. They were having as much fun as I was. They they really were. It was creative what they were doing. Makeup, same thing. Hair, same thing. Every day when you'd go, I mean they would have fun. They were delighted to be doing what they were doing. The show was a very compatible group of people. Yeah. Do you remember the first time you actually watched the episode? Do you remember seeing it? <laughs> yes. I went, whoa, whoa. And I, it was like, whoa, okay. Because quite honestly, when you're doing something like that, you don't totally understand exactly the whole thing. It's like you could right. be doing Hamlet, but you don't really know it until you get to the end of it, okay? So yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's, that's it. You have to see it all put together and understand that it was really a unique show. It was, it really was, because I've watched a lot of the old Star Treks, but I, and I'm not saying this because I was in it or anything like that. It's one of the, uh, I'm not sure I have exact words for it, but one of the most, to me, influential shows that's ever been done because of the message that it put forth. Yeah, I, I believe that. Yeah. We well, need it that, today. That, we need that yes, today. We <laughs> well, that's kind of what I was going to ask. That episode really has a is about a serious, serious issue, and I wonder, you know, how that felt to be working on something that had such a powerful message. It was good, although at that point you think it's – you don't realize 
that it's that powerful, Steve, okay? Because back then, uh, we weren't involved in all the difficulties and the situations and problems in the world and all that we are today. Uh, but, you know, there's like a foresight. Somebody, obviously, down the road had an idea that this might be very impactful uh, someday, and it has been, and I'm grateful for that. I am grateful to have been allowed to be a part of it. Yep. Well, we are grateful, Susan, that you joined us for this wonderful conversation about Mara and the fun, making of guys. Day of the Dove. <laughs> well, good. I'm glad. It's been absolutely fantastic talking to you and getting some insight into what it was like to make that episode. And thank, thank you so you. much, Susan. We appreciate it. Oh, we are so grateful. God bless you back. Okay, take care. So that was absolutely fantastic, hearing what Susan Howard had to say about her experience making this episode of Star Trek. But Scott, I would like to hear what other people had to say. Well, back when William Shatner wrote uh, Star Trek Memories, which came out in 1993, and I I love that book, uh, he referred to Day of the Dove as extremely good. Michael and Sarah had this to say about Shatner. He said, Shatner never let up. His tremendous enthusiasm was communicated to anyone working on that show or watching it. I don't wish to detract from Nimoy, who's a real professional, but Shatner had the tougher part. He had to create a character without the auspices of alien makeup and mannerisms. When it came to playing Kang, he said, what a magnificent character to play. Immediately, just from reading the script, I knew how special the role was and how rare it was to find a character like this in either television or film. Kang had nobility, and that's a quality that I have always been fascinated by. And then James Dewan said, We were probably having a little too much fun on that episode. It was well into the third year, with Gene Roddenberry missing and Paramount in control. So when we got the chance to let loose, we did. It was a pretty wild concept, and I suppose that we were getting caught up in the moment, but a lot of people really liked that episode. And yes, Hmm. they do. And I love it even more, which I did not think was possible now. I also think it fits in looking at the way that you guys look at the show as almost serialized, that this, in a way, almost, it doesn't quite justify, but it explains a lot about Kirk's attitude in Errand of Mercy which mm. is that we see that these that the Klingons, as soon as they see him, that they have agonizers, that that is how they deal with it, that they do embrace bloodshed and war, and they conquer. And so the, even though he was being, you know, over the top and errand of mercy, to the point that he couldn't see when, when there was an opportunity for peace, mm-hmm. he couldn't see his own behavior, he still, all those things he thought about, he was trying to protect them from were real things. And that those are things that Klingons do. And I think this episode kind of does show that. And and Laura, you pointed that out. Uh, You wrote an article recently for Star Trek dot com where where it was like in defense of Captain Kirk. Um, But you went through all these great traits that uh, for for why Kirk has really endured over these years. And you pointed out Errand of Mercy as an example where Kirk was not afraid to admit that he was wrong. And I think that because he he did see the error of his ways in Errand of Mercy, even while fighting the effects of the, of the alien entity in Day of the Dove, he still was like, you know, we're not going to fight. You know, this is wrong. You know, we're, you know, uh, 
it, it's, it's a great through line connecting Aaron of Mercy to Day of the Dove uh, and Kor to Kang. Um, I think that's a really, really great point. And, and I just, you know, when you look at Star Trek as a serialized show, you would almost sort of assume it, it, that, that that's what the writers kind of had in mind. I mean, of course they didn't. And, and, you know, we are connecting the dots uh, in a way that maybe it's a bit of a stretch sometimes, but it still works. Steve, what do you think? I've been think, trying to think of how I want to sum up my feelings about this episode. The, the, the first thing is I, I really like it. And I think as, as we you know, pointed out some great performances, it's very disturbing watching what happens to our crew, the, and, and finding a way to a resolution, I, I think really works. The thing I keep going back to is that this is not really a metaphor for me anymore. Like we're all on a ship. We're all trapped here together. Mm-hmm. We're getting increasingly angry at each other. There are a lot of people in this country who are buying ammunition right now. This is not a joke. This is for real. And the thing is, you there's no challenge in making peace with people you agree with. There's no challenge in making peace with people that have never done anything to you. And because I'm in the midst of Gandhi again, and during partition in India, there are somewhere between 200,000 and 2 million people killed. And all sorts of atrocities were committed, like the atrocities the Klingons and the Federation are talking about. And they found a way to make peace. They found a way to get to nonviolence against people they really, really hate. And we're not at that level. Nobody has, there haven't been hundreds of thousands of deaths. There haven't been those kinds of atrocities in this country yet. And yet we got a lot of hate. And so figuring out how to, as you said, Scott, or as Kirk said, not killing today and looking not at the other person and going, what's wrong with you, but looking at yourself and going, where have I gotten this wrong? How am I too angry? How can I find a way to reach across and make peace? That's the big thing I keep thinking about. You know, it really says something that here's a show that premiered in 1966, 56 years ago. And on one hand, our, like going through these episodes by with with this comb and and dissecting it to within an inch of its life and and seeing these episodes in new light because of of turns of events that have happened just in the last 5 or 6 years and then the way that these episodes reveal new discoveries because we're looking at it with a different set of eyes uh and and yet it i mean it's 56 years old and it's still it's still relevant in some ways it's still ahead of its time in some ways it's very dated in some ways it has not aged well but in more ways than not it has aged well and it's 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 like a fine wine in which it's aged better than so many other television shows over the course of the last you know the 80 years but but this episode in particular, like when I was a kid, when I was in like middle school, like you, Laurie, when I was in high school and into college and beyond, and you know, I started working for Creation in the 1990s. This was an episode that I always really enjoyed because it was a fun show, a lot of action, and again, Michael Ansara was just superb. But in more recent years, rewatching this with a different set of eyes after doing this deep dive podcast and seeing just in all the ways in which Day of the Dove is speaking to today's times and it works is just really mind blowing to me. 
And scary. I mean, it's scary, scary when I think about how true it is. We did during, you know, during lockdown when everybody was in their Close home. Doing yeah. Their thing. Yes. Yeah. Um, Trek movie we did every Sunday night. We would do a Star Trek viewing party and we would just pick an episode and we'd all get on Zoom and watch it together. And when we watched this one, we were all struck by how 100% relevant it is to what's mm-hmm. going on right now. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember when when Black Lives Matter happened and the protests were happening, you know, there were, there were many articles that were written, whether it was in the LA Times or the New York Times, and the way that which movies and television have always looked at racism over the years. And of course, you know, the, the one movie that they always picked with that was Do the Right Thing. But on at least three separate occasions from three separate publications. And we're talking like LA times, New York times quality, like prestige. There's let that be your last battlefield. And I like that episode a lot. I know that's also a heavy handed one, but like that episode absolutely held up in, in, in the wake of, of black lives matter. I mean, it's just amazing that this show is just so, like, I mean, that's what makes that's what makes the original series so great is that that was the plan. And yeah, there was a subtlety to it when Gene Rodberry was in charge, when Gene Coon was in charge, even when John Meredith Lucas was in charge. But when Freiberger came in, I mean, it, the subtlety went out the window, but it was still effective. And we're still talking about these episodes. Yeah, I mean, this episode doesn't even feel like a season three episode for the most part. I except agree. for a few shortcuts. But but story-wise it feels like i was i was i'm always surprised when i see oh yeah it was season three really really yeah yeah but you know what laura i want to ask you like do you remember the first star trek episode you ever saw i don't remember which episode you know what's funny instead of remembering the first one i saw i remember when i had seen so many and i used to comb through tv guide like looking for the reruns yeah i remember the last i remember the last two on my list to check off and then I got one of them and then there was one left that I hadn't seen and waiting and waiting and looking every day for that one to come on. Cause I've, I'm sure I'd read the Blish adaptation before I even saw it. So oh, the wow. last one I saw in the whole series was the Savage Curtain. Oh, interesting. Oh, with obsession okay. right before it is the last two that I was like, I know they exist, but I've never seen them. And hmm. what is, what is your all time favorite TOS episode? I can't, I never can. Ah, it so depends on my mood, what I feel like. Do I want great scenes? Do I want to be entertained? Do I want a big moral? Do I want a great guest star? Do I want a big Spock moment? I mean, it's so, it completely changes from one day to the next. I can never do those ranking. I never rank things. I just can't operate that way. Uh huh. Uh-huh. Now I, I completely understand. Um, I, you know, I, I do have a number one fave that's just right at the tippy top. It's Metamorphosis, but but when I when I get through two through five, it you know that order changes depending on my mood. Um, so it does make ranking extremely difficult. But uh, Laurie, I uh, cannot thank you enough for joining us for this deep dive of Day of the Dove. Uh, and where can people find you on social media? Um, Twitter is the best. I'm Flubish, F-L-O-O-B-I-S-H, on Twitter and Instagram. 
But Twitter is where I have the most fun. And it's also where I put my little Riker pictures everywhere. I love your Riker pictures. My Riker action figure has been on some adventures. He had a mammogram yesterday. So (laughs) he gets around. Yeah, he's doing he's good. He's fine. He's doing a lot of different things. But he and he's coming back to Vegas, which is where I found him. Oh, fantastic. So, yeah. Wait, can I get another picture with Riker? Yeah, I mean, I have one of you with him, but I will yes. definitely get another one. <laughs> well, make make sure also that you check out Laurie on trekmovie.com. And also be sure every Friday, if you want to know, gee, you know, look, with all the new Star Trek shows and with all the conventions are back in full force and with everything that's happening in the world of Star Trek, there's so much happening. And if you want to just find it, go to one place to like listen to all the breaking Trek news about who's cast in like season three of Star Trek Strange New Worlds. Not that they've announced that yet, but just other breaking news about Star Trek. Do go to Trek Movie and listen to that Star Trek podcast, All Access. Those episodes drop every Friday morning. And Steve Morris, my my colleague, my friend, my partner here on Enterprise Incidents, where can people follow you? Well, they can follow me at SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram. Of course, my other podcast, I'm just going to recommend you tune in right now because you'll get to hear our multi-episode exploration of Gandhi. And of course, if you want to follow uh, Enterprise Incidents, check us out on Facebook. We're doing a lot on social media there. You can also check us out on Twitter at Enter Incidents, Enterprise Incidents on Instagram. Please subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Please review the show. And if you want to support the show, there's a little link right in the show notes that takes you to Anchor and you could support the show for as little as 99 cents a month. Scott, how would people find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Movie Mance. And be sure to share Enterprise Incidents on your social media platforms so more people that can find out about Enterprise Incidents that they have not heard us before. People are still discovering us. I'm still getting, I'm still getting messages on Twitter and on Facebook from people who say, I just found Enterprise Incidents and I'm only up to like dagger of the mind, but I love the show so far. So please share Enterprise Incidents on your social media so more people can discover Enterprise Incidents. And we're, you know, we're sort of on the back end of the original series. We only have about 12 episodes left to go before we're done with Enterprise Incidents on the original series anyway. But next on Enterprise Incidents, after I have to say the first half of the third season, with the exception of Spock's Brain and with the exception of And the Children Shall Lead, these episodes were pretty good. We've had a lot of great episodes that we've covered so far on the third season, dealing whether it was, uh, of course, Spectre of the Gun and Paradise Syndrome and the Enterprise Incident and Day of the Dove and the Tholian Web and Is There in Truth No Beauty? But now with the next episode, things are going to change because so many of the creative forces of Star Trek have left. Roddenberry was kind of a no-show by this point. Bob Justman was about to leave. Jerry Finnerman was gone. Dorothy Fontana was gone. And we are really going to start seeing Star Trek. The quality is going to drop and it is as a lifelong fan, watching it this way and analyzing it, it's a hard thing to experience. But when it came to the performances, these cast members were still giving it their all. And up next is an episode in which they do give it their all. And there are a couple of really great moments, including one of the defining moments of Star Trek in terms of the impact. Joining us next time, please do enjoy, join us next time 
for Plato's stepchildren. This one's going to be a really, really, really interesting conversation. Join us next time on Enterprise Incidents. And until then, keep going boldly.